It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the What's Real podcast. It is episode 93. And I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my compadre, my co-host, my cohort, my co-conspirator, and my tag team championship partner in podcasting himself, the J. Jared Bajoris. What's going on, the J? That's my turkey impression. Hate you. We are now the What's Real podcast in the month of November. Yeah, I should have just said gobble, gobble, as I think I did last year. (laughs) November. Hey, I tried. Hate you. And. As I'm sure you can tell, the usual for the opening promo from the J, as pumped as ever, as vascular as ever. I did hit the gym earlier, so we're ready to go factually and literally pumped this week. But man, 93 episodes heading into November 21. All kinds of shit going on as always here in the what's real world. So let's do the damn thing. Hey, you That's right. We have tons of stuff for you guys this week. Of course, we're going to have a full-on NFL segment as usual. We're going to take a look at our predictions from last week, make some for next week, update you guys on the fantasy stuff. Uh, We're going to break down the Steelers versus the Browns and, of course, our weekly power rankings. And also, we are doing a deep dive this week in the world of professional wrestling. First up, Dark Side of the Ring season finale all about the WWF steroid trial. And that leads into what else we're going to talk about. We're going to take a look at a very old episode of the Donahue talk show. And it's all about the WWF scandals. And the reason why we're going to do this is because they're intertwined uh, with the steroid trial. So this has to do with WWF ring boy sex scandal stuff. Uh, it's going to be some gross shit, of course, unfortunately, but we're going to break it all down. Uh, what we believe to be the case and what seems to be, uh, some of the fake stuff in there as well. Uh, we've never really done anything like this on the show before, but it's going to be interesting. And I promise you it's something that me and me and the J are definitely, uh, on top of, uh, we are also going to give you guys our final tally for the 31 days of Halloween. Did me and the J reach 31 movies uh, in the month of October? We're going to break that down. And of course, we're going to have some goofs and much, much more this week. But let's get started. The J, this kind of just broke today uh, in the world of professional football. But wide receiver Henry Ruggs uh, for the Las Vegas Raiders uh, has been charged with a DUI resulting in death. Uh, He is 22 years old. Uh, He is facing uh, driving under the influence charge after a fiery vehicle crash early Tuesday, which is the day we record the show here in Las Vegas that left a woman dead and rugs and his female passenger injured, according to authorities. Uh, Not to get into the details of everything that happened, but rugs essentially signed showed signs of impairment, according to the police. Uh, And of course, the DUI uh, resulted in a death. So this is really bad news for him, really bad news for the Raiders. Unfortunately, somebody lost their life with this nonsense. Um, You know, what can you say, man? It's a dude that's 22 and his career and his life may be over at this point as well. Yeah, talk about a a rough lesson because... 
we, we talk about varying topics on the show. Hey, uh, and we always put ourselves the best we can in other people's shoes and try to look at things from our personal perspectives and things like that. Talking here on the podcast about all these varying things. And we, we, we state when it gets brought up that we fully admit how big of goofs we were in our teen years and early twenties. And, you know, I don't pretend that I've made a ton of mistakes in my life and things like that. But, you know, this, like you mentioned, is a case that somebody innocently lost their lives because of somebody else's decision. And that's the biggest thing about DWIs and DUIs. Uh, it's, it's one of those instances that seems like somewhat of a common thing. You know, people go out to drink a lot and, and, and drive around, but it's just something that is this, you know, this case points to how serious and severe a decision like that can be. And this woman lost her life. This football player at 22 years old is facing, according to this article, anywhere from two to up to 20 years in prison. So as you mentioned, I mean, his career's over. And if, if they throw the book at him kind of thing and he does get the 20, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. His life is, is over. All of a sudden he's in his, his early forties, uh, being in prison for 20 years from, from this decision. And it's kind of that thing, again, we won't rant about it. Like you mentioned, Hey Ed, but it's kind of that thing when we hear about stuff like this with high paid professional athletes, you just wonder, especially in the day and age of Uber and all these car services, why they just can't, you know, even a 22 year old, there's, there's really no excuse to not use a driver. If you're out drinking and getting into it. I mean, this accident happened at three 40 in the morning. Hey Ed. Yeah, it's it just makes no sense. It really doesn't. There's no possible reason why somebody would need to get behind the wheel. Uh, I like to think that a lot of us go out and about and maybe occasionally drink a little too much and hope that pretty much everybody has enough sense to park their car and find another way home if that's the case. Or, I mean, dude, here's the thing. People are adults and I'm including myself in this too. So if I'm going out, and I put myself in a position where I have to leave my car somewhere because I've drank too much uh, during the course of the night. That was my choice to make. So there's no scenario here that is not my fault, um, regardless of what happens. So it's a bad decision to make. Uh, unfortunately, dude, we've had friends pass away from this kind of stuff. Um, that's also unfortunate too, um, that anybody would lose their life during, due to something like this, that's just completely reckless and preventable. So exactly. That's, that's the word I was going to use to wrap it up where, Hey, Ed, you hit the, the nail on the Hey, Ed, as we say, very preventable, uh, grand scheme of things when it comes to these type of incidents. Cause on, on top of it, I don't know if you read third further into the ESPN article here, we had as a reference, but rugs actually lost a childhood friend, Rod Scott in a car accident yeah. in 2016 and pays tribute to him by putting up three fingers, uh, cause he wore that number. Uh, as he does that to this guy after big plays. So uh, coincidence there as well to have uh, lost a friend. But like you said, we have uh, personal, uh, this happened uh, with a close friend of ours in junior high. So it's just terrible all around, not good for anybody involved, uh, but a story worth mentioning because big breaking news uh, with us covering and following the NFL. And you even had rugs on your fantasy football team. Yep. And he's been promptly cut because there at this point, there's no reason to have him on the team. Um, I'm, probably sure that we're going to see something similar coming from the Raiders here soon enough too. So uh, is what it is. Uh, but on to the next one, the J uh, more positive stuff in the world of sports. Uh, have you been paying attention at all to the world series? A little bit. I, I was mentioning to you off air when we talked some baseball and 
you know, catching up on that, that I'll kind of, you know, cause again, the usual stuff that I talk about here on the show with my personal life, just so many things going on in my world uh, right now. I just can't keep up with everything. And we were really focused on horror movies for the last month, but when it, when it is on and I catch it, I'll, I'll watch a bit. So I did catch a couple of the games and I know as we record at this point, the, the Braves uh, lead the series and I believe game six is tonight, right? Hale. Yeah, game six is tonight, so it could be wrapped up by the time you guys listen to this. Um, but yeah, well, actually, it's going to be wrapped up regardless uh, by the time you guys listen to this. Uh, yeah, I'm game seven. I'm just hoping the Braves pull this one out. I'm not an Astros fan whatsoever. Uh, obviously, known cheaters, so it would be fine for me uh, to see the Braves pull this one out. But that's pretty much where I stand with it. That's about, I mean, I, I haven't been super involved. I do watch periodically here and there, kind of see what's going on. Um, I haven't really watched any full games of the World Series this year. Um, dude, baseball, I, I love baseball. You know that about me, but like the last two years combined, my interest in baseball has kind of like plummeted a bit. I uh, didn't care for the COVID season at all. And this season was a little bit better, obviously, but still it just, you know, I don't know what it was, but it's just, it's having a hard time connecting with me again. Uh, but, you know, still love baseball, still care about it one way or another. So hopefully the Braves can pull this one out. I'm in the same boat, man. We, we say we that's why we kind of bring up the major sports because we do and have followed each of them throughout our, our lives as far as, you know, the majors, NBA, NHL with the Penguins. And of course, you know, that's why we cover in depth the NFL because we're just huge NFL fans. And that's both of our favorite sports to follow. But nonetheless, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was the double combination hey, for myself to kind of pull me out of it stemming from last year between the pandemic season, which I'm completely with you. That really took me out of it. Uh, that, that was all kind of weird. You know, of course, like with anything at the outset of that, no fans and everything. And baseball was just a weird sport through all that. So that got me out of it. And then of course the double whammy, as I mentioned with being from Pittsburgh and following the pirates and not really being able to support them. Uh, definitely a personal uh, decision, but I know a lot of us have kind of put our foot down years ago with their ownership and the way they kind of run things in, in Pittsburgh. So when your hometown team is kind of taken out of the mix as well, I, I think that takes you your interest down from the overall, you know, sport. Nonetheless, like we mentioned, I'm, I'm still following the world series a bit. It, it appears to, to be a good series. It's kind of been back and forth. As we said, as we record game six tonight with Atlanta leading three, two, and you do have that storyline with Houston's past discrepancies with the cheating that they're kind of like the heels and I'm with you. I want the Braves to win, but I had a family friend that's huge in the baseball and we were talking and he's like, Oh man, he's like, I want to see the Astros win. Cause they'll just give the big middle finger. Like we didn't need to cheat to, to do it. Like that's their, you know, perspective on it. I'm like, fuck that. You know, like, I'll well, you know what too? Braves. Uh, Ronald Acuna, who is the best player on the Braves got hurt earlier this season for the entire year. He blew his ACL out and they still managed to make it to the world series on top yeah, of that. Good point. So it's like, dude, that and you know, you know me anyway. I not so much anymore. I was a huge Braves fan uh, in like the late '90s. I loved the team with Maddox and Glavin and like all the pitchers and Fred McGriff and like I loved that team. But obviously, that team was from a long time ago. So I'm not really a Braves fan like I used to be. I still follow it. It, it they always used to be an easy team to follow too because of TBS. Uh, they, you know, most of their games were on. So you just kind of run across them like on a board night in the summertime anyways and end up watching some of it. 
But uh, but yeah, man, definitely hope they win. Uh, it's been a pretty good series so far from everything that I've seen. So uh, and you know how it goes too, man. Anytime whenever there's a World Series or something, and you're looking at six or seven games, it's probably a pretty good series. Exactly. Yeah, and let's let's have some fun here on the pod because as we said, just with the timing, everything, and the podcast will drop on Friday. Uh, if there's a game seven, that will actually be tomorrow on Wednesday. November 3rd as we record. So what's your prediction? Hey, Ed, and then, you know, we could listen on Friday and see, see if we predicted right here on Tuesday before game six. I'm going with the big old fuck it. I'm going to say the Braves win tonight, win the world series. Okay. I'm going to say the Braves in seven. It's, it's okay. in Houston tonight. I think Houston might win at home tonight, even it up game seven Braves will take it. All right. So we'll, uh, We'll double check on that. Uh, we'll we'll follow back next week and see how our predictions worked out. Maybe I'll be right. Maybe the J will be right. Or maybe we'll both be wrong. So uh, see how that turns Never know. out. Uh, dude, this is really weird scenario I had over the weekend. Um, I kind of went viral on Twitter for the first time, um, which is bizarre because I've probably been on Twitter in one way, shape or form for like a decade, if not longer than that. So that's kind of weird. Um, but the reason why was I was on Facebook and I read a post, uh, who, uh, it's from Michael Gornick, even though that's not the name he uses on Facebook, um, who was the cinematographer for many of George Romero's classic movies. And he posted about the fact that somebody has found a three and a half hour director's cut, quote unquote, of George Romero's Martin, um, it's which is kind of tied into the show in a few ways. Obviously, me and the Jay are both big Romero fans and horror fans, and I absolutely love the movie Martin. It's it's my girlfriend's favorite movie of all time. Um, I know John Amplis very well, who is the lead character in the movie. Um, and also, um, oddly enough, um, someone else that me and you know very well, the Jay, you better than me for sure, is in Martin. Yeah, Mama Bajoris is in Martin as her maiden name, Donna O'Brien. She actually knew uh, producer Tony Buba uh, from her college days at Edinburgh here in the Pittsburgh area. So, so yeah, she has a scene in there with her best friend from college. They kind of walk out, you know, carrying groceries. And, uh, you know, it's a solid little scene. It's not just like, a you know, it's would be considered uh, most likely a featured extra kind of thing, you know, but but yep. hilarious that, yeah, my, my mom is in one of my friend's favorite movies and a movie I love too. It's ironic that this came up because I, like I was telling you, I, I even asked you personally, Hey Ed, about even just a DVD copy of Martin, if not a Blu-ray. And then it came out that they are working on a Blu-ray release as well. And then this news popped up that they found the three and a half hour black and white director's cut. So, you know, all kinds of Martin news out of, out of nowhere here. And, so, and dude, I'll explain later in the show why this was, the weirdest coincidence of all time for me. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that later, but dude, uh, for, for people who aren't aware of what this is, so George Romero has a movie called Martin. Uh, it's a quote unquote vampire movie. It's from 1977. Um, it, George Romero always said it was his favorite movie outside of the dead series. Um, I love it. I think it's besides Dawn of the dead. It's probably my favorite Romero movie. Um, it's really something else. I've had a lot of experiences with this movie through the years. And one of the things that I always remember being a fan of is George Romero, uh, mentioned that, um, his original cut of the movie was over three hours. 
And he also mentioned how he wanted to make it in black and white, but they couldn't do that. And there's also something that I found recently of a clip where Romero was talking about at the time when he was making the movie that he wanted to make it in black and white. And it was essentially a brotherly disagreement with Richard Rubenstein, the producer, saying, like, there's no way we're doing black and white. Um, So for the fact that they uncovered this, this is literally a holy grail. Uh, in the world of horror movies uh, and to George Romero and, uh, you know, enthusiasts and fans as well. Um, It's a major, major find. Um, There's obviously no word on what's going to happen with this. It's too, you know, early to kind of speculate. Hopefully it'll get worked out into some sort of a DVD release or something like that. I'd personally love to see a screening of this somewhere, Uh, hopefully in Pittsburgh, which seemingly never happens for some reason which drives me nuts um and dude how about this for weird too i saw that somebody posted about this today on facebook uh, a pal of mine named ralph langer who is in some of the romero movies he's in dawn of the dead he's in day of the dead um mentioned that in i believe it was 1986 at the fulton in downtown pittsburgh they did a george romero festival like and they showed a bunch of romero stuff and one of the things that they actually showed was the black and white three hour cut of Martin. So this has been out there. And from what I understand, what they found was a 16 millimeter reel. Um, I don't know specifically if Martin was even shot on 35. It was probably shot on 16 and blown up to 35 millimeter. And I'm guessing that's why this exists in the first place. Uh, right. I'd love to find out more of the actual story about how it was found. I do know that uh kevin christ who's the operator of the living dead museum here in pittsburgh he also runs the living dead festival uh was responsible for it and apparently it was due to somebody that came into his establishment but that's really all i know uh regardless though it's an amazing find and something that a lot of film fans and horror fans are really excited about just judging from the reaction that i had for posting the news on twitter this weekend so it's great stuff yeah, it's so cool. I could picture in the future, hey, yeah, doing a double feature of the Martin director's cut back to back with Stallone's Rocky Four director's cut that's coming out soon. Dude, I'm about e- that. Yeah, I'm excited for. See, that's something that I like, and it's weird because I'm not a big fan of Zack Snyder. I've kind of let that be known. Um, but just them going back and doing that Snyder's cut of uh, what the hell was it? Uh, Justice League. Yeah. Uh, that kind of opened the door a little bit to stuff like this and maybe shown uh, producers, film companies, studios and stuff that there's a little bit more inherent value and stuff like that to people like us, or at least with genre stuff like we want to see is like, that's one of my favorite things about Dawn of the Dead uh, being my favorite movie of all time is I get to see this movie in multiple cuts. It exists in the the theatrical, which is technically the director's cut. Then there's the Argento cut, which was foreign. Then there's the extended cut. And then there's ones where people have kind of gone and done fan edits and put the whole thing together, kind of like how people put the uh, Kill Bill 1 and 2 together in the same thing uh, right. that exists out there. So, like, dude, there, there's a lot of an, there's a big audience for stuff like that out there. So I hope that they realize that with stuff like this. Yeah, that's the thing. You're trying to make the most money and the mass appeal factor. I get that when you're having the initial worldwide release but us cinephiles and film nerds we'll we'll take anything we can get i mean you know i I think about my favorite movies of all time say like conan the barbarian If, if there's like an oliver stone three and a half hour director's cut of that i'll go crazy dude so let me ask you 
I don't know if we've ever really talked about this because we're both big movie nuts. Obviously, if you guys listen, you probably realize that by now. Um, what is your kind of stance as far as your like movie collection goes? Like, do, so you most likely see a theatrical cut and that's what gets you to like a movie in the first place. Right. And if there's a director's cut available, I'm sure you probably do buy that one. But what is your stance? Do you want both of them in your collection? Do you really care? Does it depend on the movie? Or do you generally always want the director's cut? Because that's that that really is the intended version of any movie. I would say for me, it definitely depends on the movie. Uh, you know, of course, there's so many films out there and there's some really good, you know, critically acclaimed movies that I'm not huge on that I probably wouldn't care about having a director's cut. So it would depend. But to your point with films that I really love, I want both. I, I want the original theatrical cut. I, I really like those DVDs that have have everything in them, you know? Me it's too. like yeah, anything, you can watch both the more versions. the merrier. Yeah. yeah, give me both versions. Like like I mentioned, uh, covering the 31 days last week with one of my watches being the, the newly acquired Dawn of the Dead 4K release. And, yeah. and it has all the cuts you were mentioning on there. So I didn't even get to those yet. So I'm looking forward to that because that just gives me another excuse to to visit that world. I just you know wanted to start off with the just theatrical release. So that's what I did for the 31 days. But yeah, I still have uh, at least two different cuts on there to check out, which is cool. Have, have you ever seen the other cuts before? No, that's the thing. Okay, so it's kind of cool. It's like the the original is what it is. Uh, the the Argento cut's really cool because it has all the Goblin music that Romero didn't use. Um, it's way more cut, so it's like faster and more action. Uh, and then the extended cut is basically like the accumulation of all of this. They put everything together. So okay. it's kind of neat to have three versions of the same movie that it's kind of important to see all of them in the grand scheme of it because they give you like, dude, there's more stuff with the police on the loading dock uh, in the other cuts. And that just doesn't appear in the regular ones. It's, it's pretty amazing that that much actual footage that was used in other cuts even exists in, at all, let alone in the quality that they do. Right. Yeah. I can't wait to check them out, but to your point with all of this, what a great find, you know, shout out and, Clap here on the show for Kevin Christ that, that we know a little bit run running the same circles uh, here with the Pittsburgh area horror scene and things like that. So yeah, really really cool thing. And um, you know, hopefully Mama Bajoris makes the three and a half hour cut too. Hey, and I'm assuming she is if she made the theatrical release cut. Yeah, and there might be some more stuff in there that even your mom doesn't even remember filming for the movie. You never know what yeah, kind exactly. of stuff they add in or, or take out or what have you. So that's always cool. Uh, just a couple other things, too, just in, in regard to stuff like this, the Jay. Um, but there's two trailers that dropped online. I wanted to see if you check these ones out. First up, obviously, is one that I just saw last night. Uh, the Book of Boba Fett uh, trailer dropped. It looks like uh, we're going to get that on, I believe it's December 29th. Um, so that's a big deal for Star Wars fans and obviously people that are fans of The Mandalorian. I know I'm looking forward to it, too. Um, looks like to be a pretty big deal, man. And it's going to be a really big deal come 2022, in my opinion, uh, in the world of Star Wars, because they're just going to start pumping stuff out uh, through Disney+. Plus. Dude, this looks awesome. We mentioned when we covered uh, The Mandalorian talk on the show, which we have in the past, that kind of the appeal for us as being kind of older Star Wars fans, especially at this point, uh, you know, watching them, of course, since childhood. But these kind of versions are basically the quote unquote grittier 
kind of versions of, of Star Wars in a lot of ways. And, and this looks to continue with the Book of Boba Fett, where it seems like the plot revolves around uh, Boba Fett taking on uh, Jabba the Hutt and trying to take over his empire and stuff. So what a cool storyline. And the trailer was was sick. It, it looks amazing. Yeah, I just really like the... Dude, they're doing it pretty smart. I will give them credit where they are managing to do stuff that keeps and manages the attention of like the newer fans or people that are just kind of getting into this because it's, you know, it's a pretty big deal. It's like a pop culture thing that people might just check out. Like, okay, finally I'm going to check out what this star Wars stuff is all about or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But then it also feeds into like the original fans and people maybe our age that really haven't cared about star Wars since maybe they were kids. And it kind of gives you like that little bit of an open door to kind of be like, well, maybe it's a good time I get back into this now because they're making stuff that really looks cool compared to, you know, however many years ago where it's like, oh, that stuff, I just had no interest in it. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's just such a a broad world now after all these years in so many films, nine freaking full length films, all these spinoffs and varying animated shows like there's so many different aspects to this that it it might be tough for somebody to kind of get into it. I I know you said in the past, like even calling out your girl, Shauna, Ed's girlfriend, Shauna, like never checked out the the Star Wars world. So maybe this can be like the opening or or as a matter of fact, speaking out loud and you can answer this, Ed, I think she, she started with the Mandalorian. She checked that out with you, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. And she liked it. She really thought that kind of goes to your point. Exactly. So yeah, this could be like kind of a, an opening for, for a, a different portion of, of the audience that might not have checked just your kind of overview kind of typical star Wars fair out. So, so yeah, this, this was a big drop and, and it looks awesome. And, and that's right behind the third season of the Mandalorian coming out. Like you mentioned, they're going to start, start uh, popping these off with Disney plus streaming. And then right behind that is the new Obi-Wan show that's pending with uh, Ewan McGregor coming back in the role. And I heard they even signed on uh, Christensen, Hayden Christensen that played the original uh, Anakin Skywalker that turned into Darth Vader in the prequel series. So a bunch of cool things in the Star Wars world with the streaming services going on. I'm I'm all about it being a huge fan. So it raises a little bit of a question here, though. Uh, and I was thinking about this when I read the news and kind of seen some of the stuff this week. Do you think that this stuff and kind of the success of it um, might spell the end of Star Wars movies? Because this looks like... You know, you hear this all the time when it comes to like creative people talking about movies and TV where they're saying like, oh, man, yeah, that that movie was great or these movies were great. But like, I can only imagine now what it would be like doing it now because they wouldn't be movies anymore. We would get like a, you know, a 27 hour series on Netflix or something to do this compared to making a movie that's like, you know, 105 minutes or something. Well, that's, that's what we said with the success. I, I think of all things, it kind of goes back to, I would say, The Sopranos. Kind of really amped things up with television over feature films and films you see in, in the movie theater. And that's directly because of what you're talking about. And the fact that you could tell a more fleshed out story, you can get more in more detail. And what comes with that from a viewer and, de- viewer and developing an audience is that you get more into the characters, of course, than, than just watching a character for an hour and 20 minutes. So, you know, like a show like Breaking Bad, that kind of story could have never been told in a different format other than a television series as it was over a multitude of seasons. 
Yeah, and I think it's a lot easier too for a series to get actors to, you know, maybe like do three seasons or something like that than it would be to get actors to do like eight movies or whatever right. the case may be. It's just easier to do that type of stuff. So, uh, I mean, obviously that's a question we can't really answer. I just thought it would be interesting because I think there is some validity to it. Um, but regardless, man, the, the Star Wars universe is going to be a big, big deal uh, as we end 2021 into 2022. And also something else that uh, is going to be, uh, I think, a pretty big deal. And it's a callback to something that we've actually looked at on the podcast in the past. And I'm talking about the Jay, he's back, Tiger King. And I'm talking Tiger King 2 show is coming to Netflix on November 17th. A trailer just dropped this week. And I, I'll be honest with you, when I noticed this, I was like, like, I'm not going to care about this at all. And admittedly, the fucking trailer got me. It looks pretty good. Um, and, <laughs> was, and it's and, and it's probably something we're going to take a look at uh, on the show in future weeks here, too. So what do you think, the Jay? Did Tiger King 2 capture your attention? That's why I was laughing because of your reaction. I had the same. I'm just like, I'm kind of Tiger Kinged out at this point, which one of the reasons we covered it on the show, we jumped on it. You and I mentioned we kind of stumbled on it without knowing much about it when it yeah. first dropped on Netflix. And we both like watched the whole thing because I was texting you during it. You're like, dude, I already finished it. And I was dude. like halfway through. I'm like, Katie and I spent a rare Sunday. We had all Sunday. We watched like the whole thing. It's because this dropped right around the time that the pandemic was really that's right up. that's why i had the so know, like the every but dude, free time and dude let's this is crazy coming to think about it but like you know we talked about this before i'm sure we talked about it at some point on the show where with on demand and all this kind of stuff that there's really no appointment television anymore other than sports um, but dude, Tiger King was definitely one of those things, even though it was a series just put on Netflix so you could binge it. It felt like literally everyone was binging that at the same time. And it's because of the pandemic, of course. But that might have really kind of marked the last time that as a society, we really have something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. And, and that's that's what I think the appeal was to us uh, speaking of my wife and I watching it together where it was one of those classic ones where, and that's why you binge. And that's where the whole term binge and everything with binging came from is the fact that the, you know, like say that you're through three episodes and that third episode ends and you're like, man, one more, you know? And then the fourth episode ends and you're like, fuck it, one more, you know? And that's yeah, what happens. And that's definitely what happened to us with Tiger King. Well, there's enough twists and turns to get you like they, they were able to have some sort of a hook at every episode. Exactly. Like. Yeah. Cause that was one of those ones where like, you know, again, by episode four, you're like, how much crazier can it get? And it kept and getting it does. crazier, <laughs> crazier. And, and like you said, the, the, uh, the trailer was great. It had, I forget the, the fat dude's name. We were ripping on him the first time we covered it oh, on they, the jet ski. And they boy, showed they him on the jet ski up. again. I'm like, yeah. you got me. <laughs> so, and then I have to throw this at you live on the show. Hey, Edge, uh, dropping news, breaking news here as Carol Baskin, since the drop of the trailer, has sued Netflix. So, uh, this article comes out on Deadline. If you had any doubt whether there was going to be drama galore out of Tiger King 2, 
Big Cat Rescue boss Carol Baskin has taken a legal bite out of Netflix more than two weeks before the sequel series debut in a curt complaint filed in federal court in Florida on Monday, as we record, that's yesterday. Baskin and her husband are aiming to shut down the streamer and series directors Rebecca Chaiklin and Eric Good's Royal Good Productions from launching the five-episode Tiger King 2, as is on November 17th. And without getting further into that, there is an update uh, that came out after that article, Hey Ed, and they're saying that Netflix won't have to worry about Carol Baskin and her just-filed contract lawsuit pulling the plug on the November 17th launch of Tiger King 2, at least not for now. Uh, and then they go in to say, you know, why that is. We won't get into it here, but, um, you know, breaking news there. She's she's going after them, trying to stop this and suing them. But with all the, the legal stuff behind it, it doesn't seem like she'll be able to stop them in time uh, from us getting our eyes on it, at least it looks like. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a Tiger King Thanksgiving for a lot of people this year, which is going to be pretty fucking weird. But nonetheless, uh, it's interesting. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Hopefully it gets to air uh, in November on the 17th as planned, because I definitely would like to check it out. And as I mentioned, we'll probably take a look at it here on the show, just like we did the first season. Uh, another thing in the world of movies uh, before we have uh, we have one more other thing, too, and we're going to take a quick break. But uh, another movie thing, this was really surprising, the Jay. So it looks like the Boondock Saints are returning to their righteous vigilante ways. Deadline reports that director Troy Duffy is teaming up once again with actors Norman Reedus and Sean Patrick Flannery for a third film that follows the twin Irish brothers on a mission to kill criminals and evildoers. The script is being written by series creator Duffy along with Flannery and with input, input from Reedus. Filming will begin next May when the Flannery... Uh, when Flannery completes work on the Amazons, the boys, and when Reedus completes his work on the walking dead's final season, uh, producing boondock saints three will be Sean Reddick from get out and blacks Klansman, as well as Yvette Yates Reddick. So, uh, pretty decent pr producing staff here. Uh, they're trying to get the band back together. Uh, not high hopes for me, however, because I thought the second one was horrible. Um, so and, yeah, and I still love the first one. You know, the first one's still great. Um, I don't know how much interest there is in this at this point. I'm sure there's enough, um, but time will tell if it's actually something worth watching or not. Yeah, and just to shift, uh, shift through some of the plot points and things on where they might be taking this, uh, director Duffy stated that the sequel will shift focus away from Boston mafia villains to corrupt politicians. As he says, where we're going is the brothers are older. They're coming out into a brand new world that is not like the one they left. They are at odds. One wants to continue. The other doesn't. There's a new enemy out there, not like the traditional ones they faced. That's the thing that is timely about this one. So they're kind of going into that. And I don't know. I wanted to mention this uh, when we brought this up, because hey, I don't know if we had talked about it. Did you happen to catch Overnight? It's the 2003 documentary about the making of this and about yeah. Duffy. Yeah, because he's Did, did Duffy you like that is at all? I, I do. It's interesting. Yeah, too, it was crazy. It, and it was very interesting as an independent you know, film guy for me. Dude, it shows Duffy being a complete self-destructive asshole. Oh, yeah. Uh, when it came to it, even his own artwork. So the fact that this guy has not only made that movie, but has made another one and is also getting to make another one is kind of mind boggling. But it's really weird, too. Um, do you remember? Like, so he, he had to work at a bar in this uh, in the documentary. Uh, yeah. to be able to get the money to make the next movie. Do you remember who made him do that? 
I forget there was there were some high Hollywood people at the time involved. I know Wahlberg, Mark do Wahlberg you, was in that a lot. Do you remember what studio released Boondock Saints originally? Oh, Weinstein. There you go. You got yeah, it. Yeah, there you go. Yep. So very um, interesting that that would be involved in this, uh, nonetheless. But still, uh, it makes for something interesting. I mean, I'm definitely going to check for it. I'm not so sure it's going to be anything really worthwhile, but I would probably at least give it a chance because I do still really like the original movie a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing with Duffy coming back. He is at least the cre- the original creator, and then you have the two stars. I don't think you could do it without them. So uh, having those three uh, makes me at least, like you mentioned, interested enough to check it out. The the big take back, like we already said, was that the, the sequel was kind of pretty bad uh, in both of our opinions. So kind of, you know, got to see what a, a third one's going to do here. Absolutely. So uh, just one more quick thing here on the show before we take our first commercial break. Uh, We haven't really been talking a lot of sneakers on the show lately, the J, and that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. It's probably going to be less uh, because of the fact that we're heading into the the winter months here and there's just not a lot of sneaker stuff going on for us personally. Um, But dude, this is pretty wild. Uh, So on October 27th, Nike filed for new trademark applications for Nike just do it and the swoosh logo the filings indicate to intent an intent to make and sell nike branded virtual shoes and clothing meaning that nike is looking to head into the metaverse um man this is just if this isn't like another major red flag of fucking greed man jeez and who the fuck like dude i know I I try and keep an open mind to stuff like this because I know it's not my wheelhouse, okay? Who the fuck is paying for digital Nike stuff for, like, a avatar? It's weird. Yeah, It's like, here, I'm going to copy and paste this from Google. That's my avatar for free. And, and dude, it makes me wonder if there's going to be a time in the future where where shit is almost mirroring what it was when we were young. Like, say you go and copy and paste that shit on your fucking avatar, and I'm the dude online being like, nice fake Nike avatar, dickhead. Like, and then it's like, the dude, like, I got caught with fake Nike online. Like, this is where shit just gets a little out of control. And I think that, like, a lot of the science fiction movies and stuff, of the past we're on to something <laughs> now it's crazy I, I had to have you school me originally we did a story regarding uh john cena with some of his virtual stuff oh the and nfts it, it kind of failed uh, and that's i didn't even understand too. what that was yeah you were explaining it to me and then this this metaverse thing i had to look it up and and, and again I'm, I'm with you i get it i, I like being open-minded and aware of this stuff and educating myself on it but i like yeah, like you said, who who the hell people out there going to spend tons of money on Nike branded virtual shoes? Yeah, it's well, dude. OK, and I know that you probably at least got some semblance of this. So remember uh, a year or two ago, uh, I want to say it was NBA 2K, whatever year that was. Um, and I remember I got it and I really enjoyed it. And I remember you got it. And they had this thing where, you know, you could play like any sports game where you play your your season or whatever with your favorite team and players or whatever. But then like in all new games now, you can do the thing where you create yourself or whoever as a creative player and you play as a singular player on a team that drafts you and you, you have to practice and do all this stuff. But the reason why I bring it up is because 
there's an area where you can like walk around this town and there's stores and there's a gym where you can go practice and all this stuff. But, but you walk into stores and you buy shoes and you need virtual currency to buy them. And you earn that currency by doing certain things in the game, but you can tell that there's way too much of the stuff you can buy. So it's basically like you can play the game, earn points and use it to spend on this stuff for your character, or you can pay and get as much stuff as you want. So it's like fucking dudes are paying to get fucking Jordans for their, their goddamn NBA 2K player to have so he can wear in fucking games on a video game. It's bizarre. Yeah, that's what I was. I got a receipt from Apple uh, yesterday. I was wondering what the hell it was. And my daughter, we have to talk to her about it because I don't know how she, you know, because like my, my kids do chores. So they, they have, you know, not tons of money by any means, but they have, you know, they have a little stash of money, you know, and they spend on certain things. And with that, I, I think it's through robot uh, Roblox that they play. Uh, there was okay. a $2.13 charge, neon rainbow apartment, modern mansion for three twenty, fancy restaurant for two thirteen, character creator for five thirty four. So she spent, you know, over ten dollars on what we're talking about, and I have to have a talk with her. Like, you know, you're we're not going to be letting you just buy random shit on your own in a video game like this. And it, it goes right into this this segment here. And and just to wrap up my take on everything, hey Ed, I gotta say because this was funny. One of the first things I said to you, trying to kind of understand it, and I'm like, you know, like you mentioned to pay for something to be like some cool pair of shoes in, in your avatar. Going down on the Twitter feed on the article I was looking at on this. Okay. Uh, this, you know, we'll give him credit at Exit Liquidity One. He says, Big news, guys. I was able to successfully screenshot Google. And so now I own Google, multi billion dollar acquisition with just a few clicks. <laughs> so, Dude. you know, great minds, man. That's exactly <laughs> basically what I was saying. And I seen somebody, I, I don't have it. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. I seen somebody else reply to this post too, because it has to do with Nike. And the dude's like, man, can't wait to get all them L's on the sneakers app in the metaverse. I'm not even going to be able to buy <laughs> virtual shit from these motherfuckers. Like it's my God, dude, it's bizarre. Like this is such, you know, and not to side tangent too much, but I was recently listening to a, a podcast that I listened to. It's called the Super P Podcast. They're not involved with us at all. Um, but they had a guy on their show and they were talking a lot about the stuff that we talk about here on the show, the Jay, like uh, sneakers selling out and resale and stuff like that. And this dude made a great point. And I listen to this. Resale is the new retail. And yeah. The reason being is stores don't have the interest in regulating this kind of stuff. Like we said before, like there's bots and people go on and buy everything. And Nike doesn't, they say that they do, but they don't give a shit about this. As yeah, long as their as stuff sells out, that's all they care about. Yep. So they're falsely creating this other market. It's bizarre because most people in the know about anything. I don't care what you're talking about. Like if I knew a store down the street had these fucking cheap watches that sell online for $500 a piece, I'm going to march my ass to that store tomorrow. I'm going to buy every fucking watch I can afford and I'm going to flip them all and make the extra money. 
because retail as a service is it's too big to care about that kind of stuff. And people are too poor to pass up on opportunities financially like that. So then we get this fucking weirdo economy where everything goes on sale twice for vastly different prices. And it's literally anything you can think of except for like food. But, you know, during the pandemic, people were doing the shit with toilet paper. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention, too. Yeah, toilet paper, paper towels. Crazy. We're in weird times. Hey, what can you say? Because going into this, I, I noticed this through uh, the power of the interwebs and, you know, talking about NFTs like we were. I don't know if you heard this story, but it was saying breaking news. Elijah Wood, the actor from Lord of the Rings. We, we love Elijah Wood. Shout out to Elijah. Yep. But he's uh, he's touted as he touted a newly acquired NFT. So to go in with what we're talking about in a racism scandal ensued. So the story with that is, hey, Ed, Wood's an avid collector of NFT and he previously owned six pieces from a collection called Jungle Freaks. Since posting about it, racist cartoons from the NFT artist time at adult magazine Hustler in the 70s have been brought to the forefront. So so that's what happens. The Lord of the Rings star, he posted a, a golden bust of a zombie uh, that he got. And as they say, it seemed innocuous enough. But the zombie bust was by George Trosley, a 74-year-old artist who had previously published racist cartoons. So that means Elijah Wood's a piece of shit. And yeah, I, apparently. I say that I say that sarcastically because, you know, yeah, it, dude, I'm sure he didn't know or like whatever, you know, it's just again, it, it all just goes into like what we're touting here is just how crazy it is here in 2020 with all this shit. And we're just at the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, dude, it's I'm telling you, this just reminds me of this. I know it's a little bit off topic, but dude, I feel like we're going to start deviating away from like, you know, how people go on social media and share stuff like people are just going to quit doing that shit. And I think that's what's going to eventually happen on the because like people are so tired of all of this stuff. They're just going to quit using a lot of the shit and it's just going to be nothing but kids and young people on the stuff. And that's going to be weird, too. Like, I don't know where this stuff's going to go. I think I don't think we foresaw this happening in the first place. Exactly. Right. So what the fuck do we know? You know what I mean? They Again, might just it's, it's like we say about so much of this, man. It's the Wild West because of that. Just like when when the Internet started. And we're still dealing with it, you know, because in the, the grand scheme of things, not that we're at the infancy of it, we're, we're you know, a few decades in, a couple decades in, but nonetheless, in the timeline of life, we're still pretty early on, you know, and then, you know, you throw in social media has only been around for 10 years, which it's crazy. It's already been 10 years, but nonetheless, that's kind of like an infancy kind of thing. Uh, but to, to finalize that story as well, hey, Ed, uh, Elijah Wood did release a Twitter statement denouncing racism and that all his trousy NFTs are, are going to be sold, contributing the proceeds to the NAACP and Black Lives Matter. So so there you go there to to round it out. But crazy, crazy world we're living in, covering it here week to week on the What's Real podcast. Hey, yo. Absolutely, the J. So it is time for us to take our very first commercial break. And whenever we come back, me and the J are going to get into all things NFL, including predictions, fantasy football, Steelers versus Browns, and of course, our weekly power rankings. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today.
And we're back, and it is time to talk some NFL the J. I hope you are ready. Let's take a look at some of our predictions last week from week eight. First up, the Pittsburgh Steelers went on to defeat the Cleveland Browns, who went on to win the uh, World Championships of Football last year when they won a wild card game, apparently. But they couldn't get it done against the Steelers this week. Uh, they lost 15 to 10, and we will get into that, of course, coming up here in our segment. And I know that me and the Jay both got that one correct. Sure did. Next up was the first game of the week. This was the Green Bay Packers taking on the Arizona Cardinals and definitely one of the better games of the week. Um, the Packers would go on to win the game 24 to 21, and I believe we split on that one. The Jay, is that correct? And you got it right. No, we actually both picked the Cardinals on that. I don't know why I thought you picked the Packers on that, but okay. Yeah, I didn't get that one, though. All right. Next up, we have the Carolina Panthers defeating the Atlanta Falcons 19-13. to How'd we fare on that one, the Jay? That one, we both had the Panthers. Or no, I'm sorry. We both had the Falcons on that one. All right, so we both so missed we out on that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, next one we both got right. This is the Bills defeating the Dolphins 26-11 to in a game that the Bills probably should have won by more, but, you know, not to nitpick. But, yeah, Bills would go on to win, and I think we both got that one right. A dub's a dub. Hey, yeah, and we both got a dub as well. Next up was definitely a split, I'm pretty sure. Uh, the 49ers would go on to defeat the Bears 33-22 to in Chicago. Yeah, I did have the Niners. I got the win there. All right. Another one. Uh, I think we split on this one. I thought the Lions were going to get their first win, and I was dead wrong because the Eagles stomped them into the ground 44-6. to Yeah, that was wild. But, no, we, we both uh, picked the Lions. I, I picked even ahead of you thinking this was the week to sniff out their first win of the year uh, with a – wouldn't have been too big of an upset. But, nonetheless, the Eagles, like you said, they did their business. The next game is one that I'm kind of, uh, you know, surpri not surprised about, but it, uh, something really unfortunate happened in the game. I'm talking about the Titans going on to defeat the Colts 34-31 to in a game where the Titans lost Derrick Henry for the season. Terrible. That's a shame. So, But I think we both picked the Titans on that one. Yeah, we got that. All right. Next up, I know I got this one wrong, the Jay. Uh, I, I'm kind of kicking myself for this one because I had a funny feeling about this and it had nothing to do with the team that won uh, just what happened the week previously with the team that lost. And I'm talking about the Jets getting their second win of the season against the Bengals 34 to 31. Oh, we definitely both had the Bengals in that. So we both took the L who would have thunk the Jets pulling it out, but they did 34, 31. Next up in a game that was nowhere near as close as it showed up on the scoreboard, the Rams beat the Texans 38-22. to And big news, the Rams just got way better because they got Vaughn Miller from the Denver Broncos, and they're already 7-1, and and they're going to be that much better with Vaughn Miller. And I believe we both got this right as well. Yeah, we both got this right. I, I remember catching on Twitter the, the Rams – team twitter page they posted we're all in you know after that announcement and they definitely oh. are they're going for it absolutely uh also we saw the patriots surprise the chargers 27 to 24 in a game i definitely didn't see coming nope we both picked the chargers the seahawks would go down or they would uh host the jacksonville jaguars and beat them into submission 31 to 7 yeah we had that <laughs> 
The Broncos would go on to defeat the Washington football team 17-10. to This was a split. You had Washington, so I got that one. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers lost to Trevor Simeon and wow. the New Orleans Saints 36-27 to in another big unfortunate situation where Jameis Winston, the quarterback of the Saints, is done for the season as well. Yeah, terrible. He was he was even dancing after the game though, because he was just happy as his team won and beat the Bucks. So you know, more power to him. But yeah, another huge loss, another huge injury of this year. And uh, yeah, we both had the Bucks on that one, so that was a double L for the What's Real team. Hey, next up was Sunday Night Football. We saw the Dallas Cowboys defeat the Minnesota Vikings twenty to sixteen without Dak. Uh, in a pretty good performance by Cooper Rush. And I think that we both picked the Dallas Cowboys, but we're probably pretty surprised on how they managed to do it. Yeah, yeah, good game by Rush, and we both had the Cowboys, so they're rolling on here. And lastly, on Monday night, uh, we saw the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Giants in a game that went down to the absolute wire, 20-17. Yeah. Both picked them, but way tighter than we would have anticipated. And the Chiefs still still looking shaky this year. Very soft defense. And, of course, the Ravens and Raiders were on a bye week this week as well. So, the J, how'd me and you fare this week on our predictions? So, the the J did all right in week eight's predictions. I went nine and six. Hey, you know, who has been crushing this year, uh, took you to week eight. But your first uh, more losses than wins, you went seven and eight this week. All right. And how are we looking on the season? So on the season through week eight, going into week nine in the NFL with the What's Real predictions, the J is at a total tally of 72 and 53. And hey, Eot, still solid at 84 and 41. All right. Not too bad on the season. Uh, yeah, doing all right. Now, we're, we're doing pretty good on the season uh, for predictions, the J. Fantasy football, however, is a completely different world. So the J, we know you run two teams, brother. Let's give us a breakdown on how you're doing. Yeah, so I was hoping to squeeze one out in that league that I've been discussing from week to week on the show where I have the awesomely named, as I always say, Purple-Headed Warriors. So we'll start there because I was scheduled to to win that one pretty big this week initially. But the way things went, wait till you hear this one, hey, you know, I ended up losing. My opponent had 80.06. The J had 79.26. I lost by Ooh. less than a point. Yeah, and Jeez. I really needed that win. I just uh, couldn't squeeze it out. The, the big problem is that that league, I just have a ton of injuries. And coincidentally, I had a lot of Raiders and Ravens, which I didn't realize, who, as you mentioned, uh, were both on buys. So between buys and injuries, the only good thing is, with, with the overall league, and you know how tight uh, football can be with you know a shortened season, just the way that, that everything is set up, I'm still kind of in the middle of the pack, and I have guys coming off injuries and still a decent team. So it's like we say, we quote Jim Carrey as Lloyd Christmas. You're telling me there's a chance, hey, uh, and I have a small chance as I'm 3-5 and five now in that league, but there's a ton of 4-4 four and four teams and a couple of 5-3 and three teams. So I'm only one or two games out here. You know, we know how that can go, but nonetheless, um, there's still a, a far-fetched chance I can can maybe do something. So we'll see with that league. Uh, how'd you fare? Hate you. Okay, so let me give you the breakdown here. Going into this week, I was three and four. I was in eleventh place. Uh, you know, I have two games in a row that I won, so that was good. 
Uh, coming into this week, uh, I'll give you the breakdown. Going into Monday Night Football, I was down. Uh, I was losing 123, which my opponent would finish the weekend out with. And I was in the 90s. Okay, like the upper 90s. So I needed a pretty big game, and I had two players playing on Monday night, one of which was Devin Booker, the running back for the Giants, and the other was Daryl Williams, the running back of the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. Well, Daryl Williams got me 14 points, and Devin Booker got me 15, which was plenty. I would go on to win 126-46 to 123 to go 4-4 four and four on the season, and your boy is officially back in the swing of things. I moved up to back ninth to place. But check this out. I'm in ninth place, and everybody that's four and four would take me up to sixth place. So I'm definitely still in the swing of it. And and I am, I did check. I'm scheduled to win the next three games. That can change, of course, but it's looking pretty solid so far. Yeah, and throwing out my other league here, the Blue Dragons that have struggled two years in a row, even worse than my first team that I was mentioning, the PP dubs. And this week, though, hey, Eon, I got the dub, got the win. That's why I saved them for last. Okay. I won 132.36 to 108.36. Huge games from Josh Allen and Tyreek Hill carrying me. Uh, Hawkinson did pretty good for, for Detroit. He's been pretty good this year, the Detroit tight end, for an, being on an 0-6 team. We always talk about that. Typically, when you have guys on teams that are struggling, especially as the season progresses, you just can't really get much out of them, but it happens. And then, of course, Adam Thielen, uh, adding uh, almost 20 points helps. So got the big win there and kind of in the same boat. Hey, Ed, in, in that league uh, at this point, I'm lucky enough because that's that league's uh, split into two uh, divisions. Unlike my first league, uh, both of those leagues have 10, okay. uh, 10 teams, but this particular league splits up in two divisions and the other divisions much stronger than the division I'm in. So that's helping me as far as uh, maybe making the playoffs because it's three and five. Uh, again, it's similar to the other league. There's two teams that are four and four, and, and both the top teams in this division are only five and three. So I'm only one and two games out in both leagues. Again, other teams are going to keep winning two, so we'll see what happens. But there is still a far-fetched slight chance, and at this point I'm not statistically completely out of it. So I'll take that. It's the small things in life and in fantasy football. Hey, yeah. Absolutely. So stay tuned next week for another fantasy update to see where me and the Jay are in our fantasy seasons. But it is time to get into it, the Jay. Let's talk some Steelers versus the Browns. As I mentioned earlier, the Steelers would go on to win the game 15 to 10 in Cleveland. Uh, we saw uh, Ben Roethlisberger have a better game than Baker Mayfield did, uh, even statistically. Uh, we saw Najee Harris have another pretty big game. Uh, but to me, the story of this game was all about the Steelers' defense because they held this team to 10 points, which is a major accomplishment uh, considering where we're at. And I guess it's appropriate time to mention this to Jay. Melvin Ingram was on the injured list. He did not play in this game. And since then, he has been shipped off before the NFL trading deadline to the Kansas City Chiefs for a sixth-round draft pick. It's been reported that Melvin Ingram felt that he was a better player than Alex Highsmith and was very upset about his snaps getting reduced uh, over a number of games. So they have shipped him on. Uh, to the Kansas City Chiefs. And it looks like Ch Taco Charlton, who the Steelers had on their practice squad, who would take the roster spot this past week of Mel Melvin Ingram, actually had a pretty good game himself. So it doesn't seem like the Steelers are going to be missing too much here with Melvin Ingram uh, not, no longer on the team. 
Yeah, 10 or so uh, defensive snaps from Taco did okay. Uh, just breaking ESPN's Brooke Pryor was reporting that st- the Steelers are signing former Tampa Bay Buccaneers defensive lineman Khalil Davis to their squad. So uh, we'll see what happens there. Some breaking news. And just to go in with what you were saying regarding Melvin Ingram, hey, Ed, I just wanted to throw this out there. I thought this was funny from Twitter. We'll shout out uh, real Ben Maynard who said, I can't stand the Steelers, but I can give props to Coach Tomlin for saying this. And what he was referring to was uh, one of the NFL reporters here reported that when they talked Monday about people being unhappy with playing time, getting themselves traded, see LeGarrette Blunt, James Harrison, and now Melvin Ingram, the Pony Express here said he hated Steelers accommodating them, but never forget Mike Tomlin's line, and we love the Tomlinisms. He wants volunteers, not hostages. Hey, not hostages. So don't, don't let the door hit you. <laughs> yeah. That's a great that's one. That's how it works. And, and to sum up, my first uh, good hate, uh, as we do here on the show, uh, I agree with you. That was first on my list was, of course, the Herculean effort by our defense. Cam Hayward and TJ Watts combined stats in the last two games. Look those up. They're unbelievable. Uh, well, so No, no, no. Uh, no let, stop right there, yeah. the J. No need to look them up because I actually have them in my notes here. The last hey, two games combined, Cam Hayward and TJ Watt have 26 tackles, 13 quarterback pressures, eight quarterback hits, six tackles for losses, five sacks, one forced fumble, and one fumble recovery. Two players in the last two games are playing out of this world. (laughs) Yeah, unbelievable. I I read that earlier. I didn't have it pulled up, so good shit. Hey, uh, yeah, I I just read through that. was like, holy hell. Uh, But yeah, since since that kind of went in with yours, I'll throw you my first, uh, or my sorry, my second other good here in this section where uh, offensively, the Steelers achieved near-perfect offensive balance with 37 pass attempts and 32 running plays. So uh, I'll give that in the good, a really well-balanced offensive offensive uh, playbook and play calling there uh, that they, you know, help them at least carry themselves to this win offensively in a lot of ways. Yeah. I have that here in my good as well. And it's basically the same thing. It's like, we seem to have an offensive game plan now and we go out there and we attempt to execute it, which, or I should say an offensive game plan uh, that we execute. So that's super important. They're definitely doing that. That is 100% in my good as well, the J. Uh, the first one that I have this week, of course, is one that uh, I keep repeating and I've been repeating all season. Najee Harris is an outstanding football player, man. Amazing. This dude, he reminds me a lot of Jerome Bettis, not in size or stature or anything like that, but they're both similar in the fact that at the point of attack, like whenever somebody hits with them, they always manage to still go forward, which is a really good sign of Najee Harris early in his career, just in his rookie season. I'm telling you, this dude has played lights out this year, even though his numbers aren't amazing. They're good, not amazing. But wait for another year or two. I'm telling you, this dude is going to be one of the biggest marquee players in the NFL. And that's a good call there. Hey, he's improving because uh, this week uh, here in this Browns game, he enjoyed his best day as a pro statistically 91 rushing yards. Didn't break that hundred mark yet, but he's getting there with 91 and three receptions for 29. So he did break it in all purpose yards over a hundred. So, so, you know, he, he's improving along with the offensive line. That was another one of my goods. The offensive line, did a solid enough job protecting Roethlisberger, opening up some holes for Harris, especially, as we mentioned, covering the Steelers from week to week. At the beginning of the year, they were typically in our bad, if not ugly, the O-line. So it's good to see that they're kind of gelling as the weeks go on here. That's that's nothing but a good thing for the Steelers and specifically their offense. 
Yep, I would totally agree with you in that regard as well. Uh, the last thing that I have in my good is uh, Friar Muth's touchdown catch. This Beautiful. dude has been sold as a tight end who catches everything. That was one of the best catches I've ever seen. Dude's legit as shit. He's already taken Ebron basically off of the roster at this point. Uh, but yeah, they, you know what? And it kind of shows right here with the two goods that I have this week. Cause this is my last one. Um, the Steelers draft this year was monumental. They got Najee Harris in the first round. They got Fryermuth in the second round. They got offensive linemen that are starting in the third and fourth round. So like their yeah, first four rounds, this might be one of the, the, the most important drafts the Steelers have ever had, because if all four of these guys managed to be starters in the NFL, they did that in one draft. That is freaking amazing. Very successful. I only had one, one more good myself. Hey, and that was just statistically. And it's a milestone number that this win against the Browns was big Ben's 50th against Ohio teams. Of course, he's a native of Finley, Ohio, he previously held the record for the most wins by a starting quarterback in first energy stadium before Baker finally, uh, you know, got ahead of him with that, which is hilarious. Cause obviously he plays for the Pittsburgh Steelers, <laughs> all those Cleveland quarterbacks over all these years doing it. And uh, yeah, this win preventing the Steelers from losing three straight games against the Browns for the first time since the 88, 89 seasons. Uh, so that's definitely a big good there with Russell Roethlisberger's 50th win against Ohio teams. <laughs> yep. Crazy. Absolutely. And that was his 23. He's 23, three and one, I believe, in his career against the Cleveland Browns. Uh, somebody posted this on Twitter after the game where you saw once the, the buzzer went for the game that Ben was pretty much celebrating. And it, all, it just showed a, a gif of him celebrating like that. And it just said at the top, daddy's home. So <laughs> there you go. Excellent. But do you have anything in the bad this week, the Jay? Because I actually don't have any bads this week. No, not not really, because I think we're going to both concur on pushing what would have maybe been bad, but it's that's why we have ugly. So I'm sure yep. we'll both go with that. <laughs> yeah, so all just right. shout it so, out there, hey, because it's pretty. All ugly. right, so let's get into the ugly. The very first thing that you got to bring up when you're talking the ugly this week is the fake field goal that the Steelers did. Oh yeah, there was a no point in doing this. B, there should have been a penalty. C. Uh, Tomlin's concussion. answer to this. Yeah, well, yeah, you could throw C for concussion. D, Tomlin gave the answer after the game that this was the part of the game where they felt they should be aggressive. Aggressive. And yeah. I have no problem with that, but if you're going to be aggressive, then put your fucking Get the lead back on the field. Don't put the fucking <laughs> kicker out there to throw the ball. Put yeah. your fucking quarterback out or, there. To or throw just the ball. like I said, just get the lead. You're, you're at a point in the game early on in the first half to just take the lead with a field goal. And there, dude, like you it reminds the me there was no point. It reminds me of something I brought up here on the show weeks ago. And I don't know if you're, if you're going to remember this or not. I think you will. But remember, I was complaining that I think it's stupid that every team in the NFL now has their punter as the holder on field goals. And the right. reason why I don't like that is because it used to always be the backup quarterback, meaning that if a quarterback is out there, there is way more of a possibility of there being a trick play. And there's a way better possibility of completing that pass or pulling off the trick play when a backup quarterback is running it and not a kicker or a punter. Um, this is exactly why uh, in, in instances like this, because I don't think anybody would have cared if Mason Rudolph would have got hurt in this game. Um, but Chris Boswell being hurt is a big deal. I don't know the extent of his injuries. It hasn't been brought up yet. 
uh, to my knowledge. So I might have missed something today, but hopefully he's all right. And hopefully he's going to be playing for the Steelers uh, because it's kind of funny. People brought this up too. Um, everybody wants to, you know, from the Cleveland side, kind of like boohooing this uh, and saying that we shouldn't have won this game or whatever the factor is. But, dude, the Steelers were able to beat you guys without a fucking field goal kicker in the second half. Remember that, too. So that's another <laughs> major disadvantage the Steelers had in this game, and they still fucking won by five. Of their own doing, but, yeah, nonetheless. Yeah. And, yeah, at, at this point, it's just I think it would depend, obviously, how bad the concussion was for Boswell and the, uh, the concussion protocol and him passing through that. So we'll see what happens, but I'm with you. I didn't see any specific definitive news regarding that i did however uh see on twitter that he was kind of joking about it and, and stuff oh he went as like a quarterback a for halloween yeah it's got, <laughs> it's got knocked out and, and a lot of people you know how pittsburghers are we're calling on our man um who who i met and did a couple things with cool, cool ass guy jeff reed our former kicker oh god come out of retirement so yeah he had fun with that as well that's not happening of course but yeah hopefully boswell's okay and we have an uh our really good kicker back moving forward here because you know th they were trying to get the the punter to kick and he's never kicked before i mean you can't you're in the freaking nfl game yeah trying it's to probably wing it. a smart <laughs> idea it's probably a smart idea though to maybe have him take some kicking snaps going forward so though. somebody Just, yeah somebody on the fucking sideline got to be able to kick a field goal i don't give a shit if you're trotting a defensive lineman out there someone on that team kicked field goals previously in their life Right, especially, you know, if you're in an opportunity where it's going to work out for you to kick like a 23, 22-yard field goal, somebody got to be able to do that. I mean, for crying out loud, dude, Ben used to punt. Remember that? Like, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there are like multi-tooled players in the league that could do stuff like that. So uh, it is what it is. But uh, do, give me another ugly for this week, the Jay, that you have. Uh, that was it. My, my ugly was going to be the play call and then, of course, the, the injury to – uh, Boswell, because that really at points was looking like we we're going to lose the game. I mean, I'll be completely transparent, you know, say like halfway through the third quarter, I was going nuts. I was MF and everything, you know, going back to that call and just not having a kicker that was killing us. Yep, absolutely. Uh, the only other ugly that I have this week is, and it's a weird ugly, but and like you said, the offensive line is getting better. The running game is getting better. But the thing that's bothering me is, and I don't know if this is the best way to put it, I put it as offensive flow. And what I mean by that is when the Steelers line up, right, say it's first down, they run the ball, they get four yards, okay? So they're looking at a second down in like six. I feel like they don't have, and now Friermuth seems to be kind of molding into this guy, but I don't expect him to be this guy until after this season. That's just how the Steelers operate. But what I'm talking about here is being like, okay, and in that situation, like, all right, go to him. This is the dude that should be doing this. This is right. the guy that should be. It feels like they don't have that. Like, instead of having a number one, you have a two and a bunch of threes, which creates problems. I don't know how big of a problem that's going to be moving forward for the Steelers or how many different things they're working out in the offense for somebody like Fryermuth or even Deontay Johnson. But again, though, too, man, we're not seeing any breaking out from Claypool in this area. And this is the guy I feel like should be that dude. Um, but it, it's just not there yet. And he's not playing bad. It's just for some reason, there's something holding it back. I have a funny feeling it's Ben. I might be wrong on that, but that's why I'm not blasting them for it. 
but there's something here that's fucking up the flow of the offense and the ability to know what's going to happen from a, a plan standpoint, I guess is the best way to explain it. Yeah. Cause with Juju out, you know, it looks like big Ben's favorite targets, uh, Deontay Johnson right now would yeah. take, but yeah, probably you, should be you think. Yeah. But stemming from last year and, and just the prototype that, that he is, you would think that, that he'd be stepping up more, um, you know, talking about, my my weekly brain fart. Hey, it always has to happen with the J. And we're just talking about the man, but that's what happens with me. <laughs> that's all good, man. But dude, yeah. it's you know what though the the thing is moving forward with this team though. I think that they're they are making the right strides. Um, they did beat a Browns team that has very high expectations, and I know it's on a side note here, but I'll be honest with you, dude. The Browns are done. They're not going to do anything this year. This team doesn't have it. Uh, teams have kind of figured them out. They know that Baker Mayfield's not going to beat them. You just try and focus on the running game. Um, there was even a report that came out this past week that uh, I guess Odell Beckham Jr.'s dad posted some videos that were basically, you know, he was pointing out how bad Baker looked and stuff like that to the point where some people were even thinking he might get traded before the uh, trade deadline, but that didn't happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, dude, Odell Beckham has been basically an ineffective player the entire time he's been in the Cleveland Browns organization and they're getting to a certain level where they need to make really hard calls on some of these skill positions because otherwise they're just wasting the rest of their team. Yeah. I mean, that, that truly could go in for another good with the Steelers defense that we kind of shouted out first was the, you know, the Browns of course have one of the more formidable rushing attacks in the league and we held them to under hundred yards, I think 96 on just 23 carries. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the Browns offense really should take the brunt. I mean, they were three of 10 on third down. Hey, at just 30%. I mean, you're not going to win football games only getting three first downs in the entire game. And dude, an, another really good performance uh, by TJ Watt, very disruptive, uh, which he kind of is every game. And of course, Cam Hayward played another really good game too. Um, but dude, yeah, the, you know, the Steelers, it, it, it's, I'm kind of hoping that they don't get bogged down by their next few games. Uh, the Cleveland game was a big game for them. I don't know how good Cleveland really is, so it doesn't really say as much. It's good for us in the division, of course, too. Uh, they move on. They, they're going to play the Brown, or the Bears. The Bears aren't a very good team. They're going to play the Lions, another really terrible team. Um so it's kind of like we're like uh, Mark Madden, I think, said it. He said the, the Steelers are going to be a six and three illusion this year. And I don't necessarily agree with him on that, but I think we can very well see this team be six and three and still not really know what they are. I agree with that. You know, it's it's the biggest thing is is just getting the offense to, to like you said, kind of have more confidence overall, as you were saying, like some of the second down plays, getting Claypool involved, getting Firemuth, you know, even more into the the, the playbook and, and on plays. So, you know, we'll see what happens moving forward. But yeah, I mean, they have some some must must wins uh, against some very subpar teams coming up. I mean, the, the Lions are still owned forever. So come on now. Exactly. So uh, check it out next week on the show, guys. We will be breaking down, of course, the Steelers versus the Bears. But it is time to get into me and the Jays, possibly our favorite thing that we're doing now on the podcast. And I'm talking about the weekly power rankings. What's real NFL power rankings? So here we go. After week eight, the J 32 
I have a funny feeling we're going to be hitting up the Motown boys again, both of us. Get the Motown boys in here, all the musicians here at the J Compound, the What's Real Studios. Come on, guys. That's it. It's the Detroit Lions at 32 again. Hey, yo. Same forever. Absolutely. Same here with me. Uh, Now we move up to 31 this week. You can keep the music away, the J, because this week this is where I have the Houston Texans. I'm right with you. Just be a hoedown, hate you up. But I'm, you know, we're in concurrence. The two worst teams in the league, Detroit and Houston. And I have a funny feeling there's going to be a little bit more singing at 30, the J. Uh, this is where I have the Jacksonville Jaguars. All right, they're coming up. And it's one of the piggybacks. So we'll do it. Hey, yeah. We'll bring up Billy Joe and the Gators. Come on to town. Head on down to Jacksonville. The Jacksonville Jaguars for the J are 29, and I have their fellow Florida team, the Dolphins, at 30. Yeah. And I have the Dolphins at 29 falling very quickly. So, so that there. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and at 28 this week, uh, it's f- they're from the city, but they're probably not going to want to sing about this one. This is where I have the New York Giants. All right. I have the other New York team at 28 right now, the Jets. I think in my head, the Giants are still a little better than the Jets. So I have them coming up, but I have the Jets at 28. And I have the Jets at 27. So if you want to call them in, the J. All right, yeah. So I got the Washington football team at 27 with the Jet, the Giants at 26. All right. At 26 this week, this is where I have the Washington football team. All right. And I have the Steelers opponent at 25, the Chicago Bears. All right. At 25 this week, this is where I have the Philadelphia Eagles. The Eagles. All right. At 24, that's where I have the Philadelphia Eagles. So, yeah, all all these teams, again, we were saying it last week, man, the the records are kind of shaping things up a bit, too, because a lot of these teams are one and whatever and two and whatever. So Yeah, and we, don't, and we don't see crazy, ridiculous upsets in the NFL a lot of times. So you're not going to – Once the season really gets started, people are kind of deviated to their area of the rankings, and that's kind of where they stay, really. Exactly. Uh, Like like when people were getting on Urban Meyer at the beginning of the season when he's like, yeah, you you don't have those weeks where you get Purdue. So yeah, you're the pros, bro. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and especially, too, when when you're the coach of the Jags in the NFL, you're fucking Purdue. (laughs) You're the easy game on everybody's schedule. Exactly. Uh, But at 24 this week, the J, this is where I have the Atlanta Falcons falling. Oh, I'm, I'm right with you at 23 because the Eagles were my 24. I have the Falcons at 23. And at 23, this is where I have the Seattle Seahawks. All right. So I'll 22. Hey, we'll get back on track with you going first. Chicago Bears. All right. That's where I placed the really fallen Carolina Panthers, just injuries and just looking like shit. They're down here at 22 for the J. All right. Did you say 23? Yeah, that was the Falcons. I had the okay. Eagles 24, Falcons 23, Panthers 22. All right, and at 21, just outside of my top 20 this week, this is where I have the San Francisco 49ers. All right, they're coming up in a bit. I have them a little higher than you. Hey, yeah, this is a team. Talk about a fall from grace. We've been championing them since doing the power rankings in 2020, but uh, a lot of different things going on there, and that's the Seattle Seahawks dropped to 21 on the Jays' power rankings for week nine. All right, now we get into the top 20. So the J at number 20 this week, this is where I have the Indianapolis Colts. I'm with you. They're coming up a bit. Uh, they showed, you know, a, a lot of poise uh, going into overtime against the Titans. Uh, but I, I think this is a good spot for them. Still in the top 20. But but yeah, I, I'm with you. I have the Colts at 20. And also still 
barely holding on in the top 20 at 19 this week. This is where I have the Denver Broncos. Right with you. That's a great minder, as I call them, the Denver Bronx. 18 this week. This is where I have the Minnesota Vikings. Okay, this is where I place the 49ers at 18, Hale. All right. At 17, I have the last place team in the AFC North. This is where the Cleveland Browns are for me right now. All right, so I kind of thought a lot about this. I probably overthought it because I didn't want to homer it up, you know, but again, that's what's fun about the power rankings and doing this and kind of putting your own opinion in things. I bring it all up, hey, Ed, because it's 17, hopefully coming up, but right now that's where I uh, have the Steelers sitting. Okay. 16 this week. This is where I have the Carolina Panthers. This is where I place the Vikings at 16. All right. Uh, Number 15 this week. This is the New England Patriots. That's a great minder at 15 going into the top 15. That's where I have New England as well. At 14 this week. This is where I have the Kansas City Chiefs. They're struggling to move up for me because they're not even though they're winning games. They're not like really looking good. So this is where we're at. I'm right with you. It's a piggybacker at 13 is where I put the Chiefs just ahead of you. And 14, I still have the Browns. Still thinking they might be able to do some stuff uh, more than you. Hey, yeah, but we'll see. But right now I have them at 14, Chiefs at 13. And dude, talking about a fall from grace, man, this team is doing it fast. So at 13 this week, believe it or not, the Jay, this is where I have the Los Angeles Chargers. All right, they're coming up for me. Who'd you have at 12? Hey, yo. That's where I have the hometown Pittsburgh Steelers right now at four and three. Okay, I have the Las Vegas Raiders at 12 and the Chargers at 11, just since you named them and they're right there. And just missing out on the top 10 after such a big loss this week at number 11 is where I have the Cincinnati Bengals. All right, top 10. Hey, yeah, throw it at us. Number 10 this week, this is where I have the New Orleans Saints. Wow, it's a great minder. I have the Saints at 10 as well. All right, the next two are kind of cheating. It's exactly where I had these teams last week, but the reason why is because they were both on by. So at number nine, I have the Ravens, and number eight is the Raiders. All right, I'll throw it back at you. Hey, Ed, it's a great minder at nine with the Ravens, and then at eight, thinking a bit more high of them, uh, even though they lost to a terrible team, still have them up there. That's the Bengals. We'll see what happens next week, but I have them at eight. All right, at number seven this week, this is where I have the Buffalo Bills. All right, I'll piggyback you into the top five here because I have the Bills at six. At seven, I place the Titans, which with the loss of King Henry can definitely be changing, but we'll we'll see how they play with without the King. At number six this week, the Jay just missing the top five after a big loss this weekend. This is where I have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. All right, the top five. Hey, yeah. Number five. I have a feeling this is probably about as high as this team is going to get this year, especially with the big injury that just happened. Number five is the Tennessee Titans. All right, that's where I placed the Bucks. The Bucks did get in the Jays' top five. Number four was the previous number one that we had, the Jay. They had a big loss this weekend, barely lost. Uh, that's where I have the Arizona Cardinals. All right, I have them a bit higher. At four, I have the Dallas Cowboys. And that's who I have this week at number three. All right, that's where I placed the L.A. Rams. And at number two this week, this is where I have the Green Bay Packers. Ooh, interesting. So at two, I kept the Cardinals there. Like you said, they lost to a really strong team. It was a close game. So Jay kept the Cardinals at two with their first loss. 
And the number one team for me this week, if you haven't already guessed it, and they might be staying here a while after making the big trade this week. This is where I have the L.A. Rams. Man, they look good. And for the J, I'm I'm sticking to Old Faithful, just the way they're doing it. Other than week one, they've come out like gangbusters and won seven straight, knocking off the undefeated Cardinals. I placed the Green Bay Packers as the J's week nine power rankings number one NFL team. You know what, man? I was thinking about this like whenever I was doing it, and I was ready to put the Packers in there, and then I thought about the Rams, and I just thought, you know what? If the Packers would have beaten Arizona better, because I didn't think like uh, the Packers looked like the better team on Thursday, even though they won. If they would have looked like the better team or won by like a touchdown or something, I would have probably put them at number one. But I still think the Rams are better, and especially after the trade, I think the Rams are better too. That's a big so, one. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see where we go. So stay tuned for more in our power rankings each and every week here as the NFL season continues. But it is time for me and the Jay to make some predictions for week nine. So let's do it the way we normally do the Jay. Who do you think wins out of our hometown Pittsburgh Steelers and the Chicago Bears? Yeah, like we, we already kind of started discussing in our specific Steelers segment, uh, this, these next few weeks are going to be where they need to win and not mess up against these teams, and it starts here. So I definitely have Pittsburgh going over Chicago. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I do think the Pittsburgh Steelers win this game. Um, next up is the 2-5 and five Jets taking on the 3-5 and five Indianapolis Colts. Uh, there's something in me that wants to say the Jets are going to win this game, but I'll just be honest with you. The Colts are playing really well right now. Uh, they're also playing this game in Indianapolis, so I'm going with the Colts. Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. You want to kind of say, oh, the, the Jets have back-to-back weeks in them uh, of upsets, but we, we exactly what you just said. We are kind of mentioning the Colts are kind of getting some chemistry going, uh, you know, looking okay. So I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to be with you there with picking Indianapolis in this one. I probably would say this, though. It's going to be closer than people think. And I saw uh, uh, right now, like I'm on the Yahoo app as I go down these games, the Colts are 10.5-point favorites in that game. I would maybe take the Jets in 10 points in that game because I don't know if they're yeah. going to cover. Um, next up, we have the battle of the AFC North as the Cincinnati Bengals take on the Cleveland Browns. What do you think about this one, the Jay? Well, this is tough. We mentioned the Browns, you know, going through our game last week, not looking great. A lot of struggles on offense. Baker's banged up. Then the Bengals coming off a loss to the Jets. But that's kind of my differentiator right there. Hey, Ed, I think the Bengals coming off a really bad loss like that, the the way they've been looking this year, a big division game. They know they need this win. It's in Cincy. I'm going with the Bengals. Yeah, I'm going with the Bengals, too. Uh, I think it's safe to say that last week felt kind of out of character for the Bengals this season. And on top of it, too, they still put up 31 points. It's not like the Bengals offense shit the bed here. Uh, It was like bad interceptions and things like that. Uh, The Browns, to me, have kind of looked stagnant for weeks. Uh, and it doesn't look to be getting any better there. So I'm going to go with the Bengals as well, the Jay. Next up, we have the Denver Broncos going into Dallas, Texas to take on the Cowboys. Uh, this one's pretty simple for me. I think the Cowboys are playing really well, and it looks like Dak's going to be back, and the Broncos seem to look somewhat dysfunct- dysfunctional every week. I think Dallas wins this one pretty handily. 
And now on top of it, losing Von Miller on defense, it seems like it's one of those things they're looking to make some moves for next year, just like that. And yep. with the Cowboys looking as they are, again, we reference our, our own power rankings after just doing it. They're in the top 10, top five. So definitely going to Cowboys in this one. All right. Next up, we have the Houston Texans taking on the Miami Dolphins. What do you think about the battle of one in seven teams? The yeah, this is <laughs> this is one here for you. Hey, yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm going to have to go with my gut, though. I, I always mention as bad as they are, it's not a huge thing to me. But uh, with with going down to Florida and my family having property down there, the always been kind of a second team i bring that up just because that's going to be the deciding factor in this one i'm just going to go with the dolphins surely because of that and i'm actually going to go with the texans on this one because i think even though the texans have lost seven games this year they were in a lot of these games they were even getting hammered this past weekend by the rams and kind of found their way back into the game a little bit uh even though they still lost 38 to 22 they were down like 31 to 3 or something at one point so right. uh they they battled their way back i just think they're going to pull the win off this weekend against the dolphins so uh next up is the Atlanta Falcons taking on the New Orleans Saints. Um, this one's going to be weird because the Saints are going to have to figure out what they're doing at quarterback. I'm actually surprised we haven't heard that uh, Cam Newton's been signed because a lot of people are kind of going with that. But, dude, I'm just going to tell you the way I feel on this one, the Jay. I think the Falcons are going to win this game just simply because the Saints are coming off a major high and they're dealing with major injuries. And I think even though the Falcons aren't very good, um, I think they're going to surprise them. I'm with you. That was my line of thinking. Uh, divisional game, they always have a battle, these two teams, no matter where they stand, really. It's one of those things, as we know, in the AFC North, uh, a factor that can happen. All things considered, though, I'm going to stick with the Saints in this one. Hey, yeah, so we'll split. I'm going to New Orleans. All right. Next up, we have uh, the Las Vegas Raiders at 5-2, and two, taking on the 2-6 and six New York Giants, the Jay. Who do you like in this one? I'm going with the Raiders all the way. Giants are really not looking too too good at all. Like they might have a chance at the beginning of the season or something. They they haven't shown me that. I'm going with the Raiders in this one for sure. Yep, I totally agree with you on that one. Next up, we have the battle of the 500 teams with the New England Patriots going into uh, North Carolina to play the Panthers. Um, what do you think in here, the Jay? I'm just going to say pretty simply, I think the Patriots are going to win this game. Yeah, that's who I'm for, too. I, I was saying the Panthers just injury stricken. You know, it's one of those situations you haven't had your star running back for a good portion of stemming from last season, let alone in this season. And, and this season is what we're talking about here. And Christian McCaffrey still banged up. Uh, that's a big factor to me. I think Belichick's going to be able to coach around the Panther team and get the pass the win. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Next up, we have the Buffalo Bills taking on the Jacksonville Jaguars. This one's simple. The Jay, I'm going with the Bills. Yeah, uh, it's talk about a, a you know sniffing out an upset. That's not going to happen with Buffalo against Jacksonville. Buffalo all the way in this one. Next up, we have the Minnesota Vikings taking on the Baltimore Ravens. The Jay, you're supporting your guys on this one because I know you've been uh, a big fan of the Ravens this season. Yeah, I mean, I think they're just a well-balanced, strong team. Lamar Jackson is just unbelievable. He's been really on point this year, MVP candidate type play. Definitely sticking with the Ravens. You called that one, hey, yo. 
I think the Vikings win this game. And it's not that I think the Vikings are a better team. I just think the Vikings are playing solid. They're not playing the best football. But at the same time, the Ravens are coming off a bye week. And that's why I'm going with this. Uh, I think the Vikings actually surprised them. Next up, we have the Los Angeles Chargers taking on the Philadelphia Eagles. I think the Chargers write the boat this week in Philadelphia. So I'm going with L.A. Yeah, Eagles at home coming off a, a huge win. Uh, Chargers, though, uh, again, that's another team that, you know, they have those blow-up weeks and you kind of get swayed like, oh, this is the new team, like <laughs> thinking they might even run to the 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 big game, you know, yeah. and then they kind of die down. So, so yeah, like you said, they got to kind of write it. But I'm, I'm going to pick – this is where I might go with a little bit more of an upset here with the Eagles at home. I'll split that with you. I'm going to go Eagles in this. Okay. Uh, this is probably one of the marquee matches for the weekend, and I'm talking about the Green Bay Packers taking on the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, should be a good game, but I think the Packers are going to pull this one out, the Jay. Yeah, it's, this is a tough one. This will be a good game. Mahomes versus Rodgers, of course, always a great matchup. Chiefs at home at Arrowhead, but again, a soft defense versus an Aaron Rodgers that's back to form completely this year, seven and one. Who's probably going to also have Devontae Adams back again from back, COVID yep, too. after COVID. So yeah, I'm definitely going Packers. I mean, I, I picked them number one team uh, in the league coming off of this week's power rankings. going to stick with that Packers over the Chiefs. All right. We have the Cardinals taking on the 49ers in San Francisco. Um, I think the cards get right back to it this week because I think they're going to beat the Niners pretty easily. Yeah, that's that's my line of thinking is the cards coming off their first loss of the season. They're not going to let that slide against a, a team that's that's not near as good as them. Uh, they're not going to play down to, to the 49ers, I don't think. I've, I stick with the Cardinals on that as well. All right. And the last game of the weekend is uh, it's unfortunate, man, because this would have been such a fucking marquee matchup if everything was the same as it was last week. Of course, I'm talking about the Tennessee Titans playing the Los Angeles Rams. Um, you know, you would have seen Derrick Henry in there. You know, D Tennessee's been playing really good lately. Um, but I think it's it's safe to say that that's going to kill Tennessee. And I don't think they have enough firepower to deal with the Rams. I'm, I'm with that exact line of thinking. That's such a, a big loss, especially we talk about the modern NFL run game. You, and dude, you know, to have a guy like Henry so big. Henry would have been the equalizer here because that exactly. keeps the ball away from the Tennessee to, or from the, the Rams. And dude, did you see this Adrian Peterson uh, signed? By yeah, the yeah, I did. I meant to brought that up to you. Good call. Yeah, he's Peterson's back can still do it. We'll, we'll you know, we'll, we'll find out if he can still do it. Uh, nonetheless, as strong as the Rams are, a banged up Titans team uh, without King Henry, uh, I don't see it. Rams all the way here. Hey, Safe to say, the Jay. So that is it this week for our predictions. Tune in next week to see how we did. Uh, it is time to take a quick commercial break. And whenever we got, come back, guys, we are going to be doing some major deep diving into the goings on in the world of professional wrestling. First up, we're talking Dark Side of the Ring all about the WWF steroid trial. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Join us next week for episode 94 of the What's Real podcast. More full-on NFL coverage of week eight going into week nine. Also, we have a full preview of AEW's Full Gear pay-per-view. And we're going to check out the very first three episodes of the brand new season of the movies that made us. 
Hey everybody, this is Herman James, the Watch Me Podcast, and I'm here for Goose or Goose for the 94th episode of the show, where the guys talk about things like a man covered in poop from airplanes, dog-sized scorpions, and goop. All that and much more next week on episode 94 of the What's Real Podcast. talk about some dark side of the ring the season finale by the way of dark side of the ring all about the 1994 wwf steroid trial um this all came about in june of 1994 vince mcmahon scheduled to face three counts of steroid related charges in long island new york at the u.s federal courthouse of the eastern district of new york on july 5th um although wcw officials are hoping and others in the industry believe another delay or plea bargain is possible wwf attorney jerry mcdevitt tells us he expects the trial to take place as scheduled on july 5th and says a plea bargain would not happen um basically mcdevitt summarized titan's view of what happened since the indictments were originally served on november 18th 94 um and they were mainly for vince mcmahon um being a distributor of steroids and encouraging steroid use uh in his his uh company this was all started believe it or not a lot of people uh claim that this starts from the doctor's Zahorian trial uh which it did believe it or not dr Zahorian was a doctor that worked for the wwf uh in the late 70s into the early 80s and in the mid 80s as well um he would also appear on uh, WWF television playing a doctor many times, oddly enough. Um, but he was caught uh, illegally distributing steroids um, once the act changed as well in, in 1990. That's when steroids first became illegal. Um, previously before that, they were legal as long as they were prescribed by a doctor. And even to this day, they're still legal if prescribed by a doctor. But you know, you a doctor could be scrutinized on how they write that actual prescription. When Zahorian was doing this, things were a lot different. So uh, in 1994, the WWF steroid trial was to happen. And it's one of the more magnanimous events in wrestling history outside of the ring. Um, because it really demonized a whole generation of wrestlers because it's it soiled them with the, the steroids allegations. And it actually... Um, would go on to change the industry uh, to a different style of professional wrestling. Guys were smaller. They were working a more athletic style after all of this happened. Um, and one of the major things that kind of set this up was Hulk Hogan showing up on the Arsenio Hall show, um, where he would admit to taking steroids three times in his life, prescribed by a doctor, and uh, to heal from injury. That has pretty much been proven to be a lie. Um, and this is really weird the way that this steroid trial worked out, because as we know, Vince McMahon would be found not guilty on these charges. But and Dave Meltzer even says it in this uh, this episode where although the government might not have been successful in, you know, getting Vince McMahon sent to jail, 
Um, ultimately, it was still successful but it, because it exposed exactly what everybody already knew. And it's the majority of the people in the WWF at the time and the wrestling industry as a whole, for the most part, not just the WWF, were on steroids. Which would bring up, and, and I'm not going to diatribe because it's a, one of those topics that can be a whole other podcast, as you know, hate you up, but that's that's such a gray area with steroid abuse and professional wrestling. And, and we've even talked about it as like a parallel example with guys in Hollywood. When you're getting like top tier stuff, uh, like as opposed to fentanyl laced drugs of nowadays, like you yeah. know, these guys have access to, to clean like medically used steroids and things like that at the end, you know, this isn't sport where it would be cheating, where you end up competing against other athletes that aren't on steroids in that. Like I, I get it. It's a whole other ball game pun intended when it comes to football or, you know, like we talked about the UFC, for example, where somebody could get really hurt. Like a guy's not on steroids. Another guy is with professional wrestling. And that's why I brought up the parallel to Hollywood. You're only making the risk for yourself. Really? So Absolutely. that's that, again, that's a whole other argument for another day. But that's what this kind of all revolves around is, of course, like you said, the key word is the demonization of it all and the soiling of, of the reputation of some of these guys when I don't know, it's just a thing that I got my head wrapped around as I grew older and just got a bit wiser and more educated on the matter, you know, because when I was a kid, I was always like, oh, they're cheaters and fuck all those steroid guys. But Again, it's it's not to diatribe, but you kind of learn things and you're kind of like, you know, was it was it that bad? Because it created the larger than life characters and things like that. So that's kind of my preamble. But as far as the dark side of the ring episode goes, it was great. Like towards the beginning, like you said, the, the government wanting to make an example out of Vince McMahon as he faced eight years in prison over pushing steroids on his wrestlers. And uh, Jr. it was it was from the trailer, too. He had that great quote where he said the federal government came to take down the pro wrestling business. Little did they know they had to deal with Jerry McDevitt, and Vince McMahon, who pr promptly kicked their ass. You know, so and it's like, let's go. And an interesting note, the Jay, something I don't know if you're even familiar with. Um, Jerry McDivitt, the WWF's attorney and Vince McMahon's personal attorney, is a partner at a law firm called K&L Gates which is a very prominent law firm here in the city of Pittsburgh because Jerry McDevitt is here in Pittsburgh. I did a lot know of that, yeah. A lot of people don't realize that, especially people from this area, that uh, the prominent WWF attorney who's been the prominent WWF attorney since the days of Hulkamania has been from the city of Pittsburgh. Um, and also, I got to give credit where credit is due to Evan Husney and Jason Eisner, the, the creative minds behind Dark Side of the Ring, with a major coup in getting Jerry McDivitt to appear in this episode. That was the main reason why I wanted to see this. Um, this guy is one of the like there's very few things in the history of professional wrestling that have not been uncovered. Uh, we've spoken about it here on the show in the past, too, where Vince McMahon is one of those last stones to be uncovered because he's very well protected within his own company, understandably so. Um, but also Jerry McDivitt is also another one of these kind of like white whale type characters who you don't see and hear from a lot, but his name is synonymous with the World Wrestling Federation. And he's one of the most important figures in the history of the company's history because of, you know, successfully defending the company numerous times in a court of law. One one of my top points as well, hey Ed, as we always say, great minds was it, it goes into this this whole season and, and the entire series. But I don't know, it's seemingly to me, maybe just because it's fresh in my mind, it just really stood out. 
this year with like Anoki and and Anita and like just all these guys yeah. that they got for this show. Yeah. And McDevitt might be the biggest one. Like you mentioned, that was one of my top notes is the fact that, you know, they could still do a decent episode of this, but I mean, getting McDevitt like makes it almost twice as good in a lot of ways. And it's, it's one of those things at the, the end of it, you kind of think like how, how they even get him Cause he still works with, with Vince, right? He's still Vince's lawyer. Yeah. Correct. It, yeah. Cause it, dude, it's simple. And this is why I actually like McDevitt. Because he's like, we don't have, what the fuck are you worried about? He has, I'm an no, attorney. Yeah, he has nothing like, to hide. I'm not going to yeah. fuck you guys. I know what I'm saying is right and true or, you know, can't be proven or what. Like, I'm not going to say anything that's going to make us look bad. I'm a fucking attorney. So you guys should let me go on the show. Give a company perspective of it. Right. I'll, I'll protect you more than hurt you in a and lot dude, of ways. It's, it's amazing to me, too, because Jerry McDevitt has probably the smartest outlook on this whole thing he's not saying that guys didn't take steroids he's not refuting any of that that, that was kind saying, of my beginning preamble like what it, that went into exactly yeah he's just saying that vince did not distribute them to his guys and it was a commonplace thing and he was the one to basically say that the government went about this completely the wrong way and they fucked up their own case and they certainly did anything you read about this stuff they they went about this whole thing completely wrong yep yeah as, as again going back to jr as he said uh, jerry is one of the most intelligent men he has ever met and he would reach out to jerry to save his ass if he ever needed a lawyer so yeah you know, J jr was really into this guy and, and it makes sense because yeah just his personality and and again just going back to it like at the beginning of the episode where he's like kind of showing off his office and he mentions working with WWE for 30 years running and he's dealt with the Chris Benoit issue and the unfortunate yeah. death of Owen Hart. And it's yep. like, man, if you can deal with things like that, then you know, you could pretty much deal with anything. It's one of those scenarios. Yeah. And he even says in this, and this is absolutely true. There's only two instances I can think of off the top of my head where something like this happened, where he said, whenever you're tried in a federal court like this, it's like the, the feds win 97% of the cases. That's how rare it is for something like this. Like usually somebody pleads out or they fucking lose. Vince didn't and he won. And the only other instance I can think of, of just something that comes to my mind where somebody won is years ago, if you remember Ja Rule and Irv Gotti and the whole Murder Inc. rap label thing, they were involved with organized crime and the federal government tried to take them down and they spent millions of dollars defending themselves, but they won. Um, so this is a very rare instance, but it's not surprising when you look at the overall scheme of things, why Vince and the WWF completely got exonerated in this because they weren't like it's it's wrestling's dirty secret. There's no doubt in my mind that Vince wanted his wrestlers to be bigger and more muscular. He wasn't going to risk it, though, by forcing people to do it. And it's really incredibly hard to prove that this is done in the first place. Of course, it's done just like people are, are fired for things that are like sometimes I'm sure that somebody was fired because they're a woman, but they're not going to say that they're going to say it was because there, there was some other reason. Um, but there, you're not going to be able to prove this sort of thing in court. And Jerry McDevitt was a pit bull about that kind of stuff. Yep. 
and and we're at the part here coming up where John Arezzi is on it from Pro Wrestling Spotlight, calling himself a wrestling historian, and brings up massive human beings like Warrior and Warlord, and that's right where Terry Zabinski himself, who was Warlord, the comes Warlord. in for the first time. <laughs> yeah, and he's like and, you know, <laughs> and he does bring up a really good point that I I have heard in the past. I, I didn't even think about it until he said it though, where he he was brought in to testify. But he was like, I never bought steroids off Zahorian because they were too expensive. I already had a connection, yep. so I just went through my guy, kind of showing you that it was the Wild West, even for that kind of stuff. There were people that chose to use Zahorian and people that didn't. And that and that's what went, to your point, against the government's case, because these guys are admitting to using steroids, but just not to getting them from Zaharian or like having Vince tell them. They're like, yeah, I mean, I use them, but I, I got them from like my Mexican buddy or, you know, whatever. Yeah. The and, and it's really shown in this episode. They, they show you the exact moment where this happened. They had Vince McMahon's former assistant, Emily Feinberg, was brought in as a witness for the prosecution. And she said that, you know, she had given drugs to Vince and sent drugs to Hulk Hogan and brought up how she would she sent them. They split a dose and they sent the driver down to the Nassau Coliseum to deliver the drugs to Hulk Hogan. Well, the problem was in the date that she gave the WWF was not anywhere near the Nassau Coliseum and they were there uh, previously in October. So the dates were completely off and it really screwed. And this really was like the moment where Jerry McDevitt was like the hammer dropped. I knew that we were good at this point because they couldn't prove anything. And we just proved it in court that they had no way of, you know, absolutely being, you don't even have the right dates. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So like, so how do we know? So how do we know all this other shit you're saying isn't nonsense because you're already factually wrong. That's how they discredit witnesses all the time. And that's something clearly that Jerry McDivitt is very good at and didn't even really have to be good at it in this one because the, the prosecution essentially set it up for themselves to fail. Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff that, and then they, they brought up too, and this was something that I didn't really even know, um, was when Jerry McDevitt brought up the steroid Ativan and Ativan had previously been mentioned by the, um, the FDA as being something that no one should ever be taking. Um, this was a steroid that plenty of the wrestlers were taking at the time. And he even said like, you know, the government's not even being honest about what these products do to people. And, you know, and, and once they kind of said that to the jury, he said that, like, I knew that the jury basically sensed how Hippocratic all this was and that there's no way they were going to hold Vince responsible for it. And that's exactly what happened. And as we move forward here, a bunch of, I mean, cause there was a ton of talking heads on this one. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, there was some stuff that uh, Dave Meltzer said earlier, he was just referencing you know, Vince and Hogan's relationship. And, you know, obviously like everybody says, like Vince and the WF would be nowhere near where he is today. If you take Hulk Hogan out of the picture, but then uh, Brian Blair, who used to be part of the tag tight team, the killer bees popped up on here. And that was a unique perspective. Hey, Ed, cause I didn't know too friend much of Blair. Hogan too, by the way. That's yeah. A friend of Hogan. And uh, he talks about, cause he's a you know, smaller guy in comparison to these guys. So he's saying, you know, you, you have a lot of pressure on you, of course, to look the best you can and you do all you can to keep your spot. And they, they showed like steroid abuse was in all sports and they showed news footage of Olympians being stripped of their medals and all the hysteria about steroids at the time and, and all this coming to, to the mass media's knowledge and things like that. And, and at this point, there, there was a, a new law that the FBI, FBI targeted the weightlifting coach, Bill Dunn, 
Yep. And so he flipped and made a deal to give up his distributor, who, of course, as Zorian. we're talking about, is Zahorian. And it goes into all that. And all this stuff was was really interesting and cool, which leads into B. Brian Blair talking about he had a knock on his door and it's the FBI who asked him about three packages that he got from Dr. Zahorian. And ultimately, they just made a deal with uh, Blair to testify against Zahorian and they would leave him alone. And that was good enough for him. And then, of course, Hulk Hogan was one of the five wrestlers that were set to testify against Zahorian as well. And that's where Jerry McDevitt comes back in at this point in this story to be enlisted to get Hogan excused from testifying from that. Which he and, did. And he do, he does, yeah. Because he, he they also uh, talk about uh, Piper. Uh, Roddy Piper was at Zahorian's trial, but Hogan was given a pass. Again, they didn't even understand that, too. And then also Piper, and they, they kind of kept it away in this episode for whatever reason, but Piper was one of the guys that got on the stand during the WWF trial, as did Nails, as did Warlord, as did uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Rick Rude. Um, there was a bunch of them that would go on to actually take the, uh, you know, the stand in this case, and none of them really helped the prosecution regardless of the scenario. Well, that, that's the thing. Specifically, McDevitt states that he got Hogan off with a, a doctor-patient relationship due to him and his wife consulting with Zahorian about fertility issues. So that's how yeah. smart this dude is. He, he used that as part of the relationship on putting him on the stand as it would get into his medical privacy right. So that's how yep. he got him off on, on having yeah. to testify. It, it, nobody's ever going to, uh, that's the thing. I know a lot of people that don't like Vince McMahon, but I've never heard anybody say too many disparaging things about McDevitt. He's pretty much a pit bull and one of the best in his field. Um, if you notice too, the way that they introduce him on here, uh, it says underneath his name partner at K and L Gates, which means he's not just a typical attorney. Uh, he's probably kept on retainer by Vince McMahon and that's probably all he does in a court of law right now. Um, I don't see him really doing too much else outside of that because he doesn't have to. Um, he's a partner at one of the bigger law firms in the city of Pittsburgh, so he does very well for himself. Um, yeah. One of the other big things that they bring up in this, of course, and it is the main event, so to speak, of the steroid trial, and that was Hulk Hogan taking the stand. Uh, Hulk Hogan at the time had just previously signed a contract with World Championship Wrestling, which was the WWF's biggest competition at the time. And a lot of people thought that he was going to take the stand and just completely bury Vince and the WWF, which he did not do. He actually went on the stand. Vince still was angry with him for taking the stand at all, but he did nothing but go up there and pretty much protect Vince and company from any you know, wrongdoing in this particular situation. So that kind of surprised a lot of people, but it has been noted uh, that that apparently caused a major rift between McMahon and Hogan for years that would eventually be overcame. But this was the, the major thing in this trial and something else too. the J, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, you mentioned all the talking heads on here. They uh, Wade Keller from, uh, you know, he is a, a newsletter, wrestling newsletter. He's been a wrestling journalist for years, um, but he covered this entire trial. He was there during the entire thing. Um, his coverage of this is essentially what put him in the same stratosphere as guys like Dave Meltzer and stuff. It was the first thing that he did that really caught everybody's attention and, and put Wade Keller on everybody's radar. And just to, to round out kind of the Hogan talk while we're here, hey, you know, um, that you were discussing like right before uh, bringing up Wade Keller was uh, Phil Mushnick, who, as we know, you know, had it out for wrestling for decades, feeling like he's on some righteous quest to rid the world of pro wrestling. And, you know, he starts by saying Hogan was excused 
because it may hurt his career and he thinks it should have hurt Hogan's career. But then it was funny because McDevitt brings up the story of Ronald Reagan having to testify in an Oliver North case and yet Hogan doesn't. And McDevitt shoots back and says, well, maybe Reagan had the long, wrong lawyer. Yeah, because <laughs> so. McDevitt's no joke. He ain't playing the game. Yeah. Um, dude, that, that reminds me. And this, we're going to get into this much more in the next segment, but I wanted to read something to you that uh, kind of tells you how all this stuff started. This is directly from babyfaceversusheal.com, and this is from David Bixenspan. Uh, there's a common misconception about the nature of the federal investigation of Titan Sports, now WWE, that led to Vince McMahon's criminal trial on conspiracy and steroid distribution charges in July of 94. If you ask the average longtime hardcore fan how it came about, they'd likely say it was a byproduct of the George Zaharian conviction for distributing anabolic steroids for non-medical use while working for the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission. In actuality, the grand jury was impaneled in the immediate aftermath of Phil Mushnick's New York Post column from early 1992 about the sexual abuse of ring boys, the most the mostly underage boys who helped with the ring assembly and other grunt work. When Mushnick called for a federal investigation of Titan, and investigator Anthony Valenti of the Federal Prosecutor's Office in the Eastern District of New York phoned him the next day, the topic was child sex abuse. A grand jury was impaneled within days, although the news of its, of its existence wouldn't break until, check this out, the J., Current AEW announcer and then uh, writer for the Miami Herald, Alex Marvez, penned down a story on July 15th of 1992 in the Miami Herald. Um, the short item penned by the future AEW announcer specified that, quote, allegations of sexual abuse of minors and the illegal transportation of minors across state lines, unquote, were the focus of the investigation. How that focus shifted, though, has always been a bit of a mystery, especially in light of what charges the feds eventually tried to pursue. What was, on paper, the Department of Justice's strongest count against Vince McMahon for distributing steroids to Hulk Hogan as opposed to more nebulous charges of conspiring with Zahorian fell apart in embarrassing fashion, uh, which we mentioned. But here's the wild thing. In 2021... Newly redacted FBI memos from the investigation into what now WWE give further insight into how badly the feds bungled the case. In an echo in recent Inspector General report on the FBI's mishandling of crimes of the USA gymnastics physician, serial child molester, Dr. Larry Nasser, the Bureau did not seem to take the sexual abuse allegations against the ring announcer, ring crew chief Mel Phillips, very seriously. Specifically, not only did the FBI admit that they were seeking Phillips' cooperation against McMahon, but they also disregarded a videotape that showed Phillips, who died in 2012, doing exactly what multiple victims accused him of doing. So the FBI took wow. this information uh, that was sparked by a Phil Mushnick article and essentially turned it into the steroid trial. Now, in our next segment, we're going to get into way more of this stuff with the Donahue coverage, but I wanted to give that note, at least to start this, to kind of tell you that the steroids were never the initial problem. It was the child, the child sex abuse allegations. And instead of forcing somebody like Mel Phillips to go to court and stand up for what people were saying he did, they tried to flip him and use him against Vince McMahon to get more info on the steroid stuff. All right. That's that's perfect timing to where we are in the Dark Side of the Ring episode as we're, we're right around the portion where they show uh, portions of the Phil Donahue 
um, show that we'll cover. So we can get through that. And then that led into uh, that John Arezzi writer kind of telling a story about these two guys showing up at his apartment and, you know, for, for writing about Vince McMahon and the WWF and the steroid trial. And that they, they basically told his mother to let John know he lives in a dangerous neighborhood. And then once again, McDav- McDevitt comes back and basically calls bullshit saying that the problem with these guys is they have a vivid imagination. Nobody would care enough about John Arezzi to send black suited guys to his house. <laughs> so, and dude, I was loving McDevitt in this man. <laughs> John Arezzi brings up some really good points and, and was a good voice on this stuff at the time. But shit like this is what kills him. Because I believe McDevitt wholeheartedly, I don't think anybody came to visit him. If anything, he would have money got a phone call or an offhanded comment or something like that. They're not going to have guys in black suits showing up at your house because John Arezzi never held and the talking key. Talking to your mom. Well, John Arezzi never, never held the key of putting Vince in jail. So they were never worried about him. And I'm going to tell you in our next segment, why it wasn't John Arezzi. This type of thing may have happened, but not to John Arezzi. So that's just is what it is. I think he kind of mm-hmm. took someone else's story and used it as his own. Put it that way. Of course. And this all leads to the grand jury investigation beginning. Uh, Jerry telling Vince to hunker down as they were going to look for anything to get a conviction or at minimum some kind of plea to a lower charge. And then we get into, you know, all the inner workings of getting into the trial. Uh, You know, McDevitt goes on to say the media demonizes the target to build sympathy, which we know. And Mm -hmm. in exchange, the FBI gives the media inside sources. And, And again, this goes into what I was saying at the very outset of our breakdown of this, where you get older and you just, you learn about all this, you know, you learn that, they, they build sympathy on purpose and exchange the FBI's given the media inside sources. You know, everybody's yep. using everybody. It's all, what do we say? Hey, Ed, it's all a game, you know, of really course. And, and dude, but, it's, it's, it's the same on Vince's side too, because it's said, of course, didn't yeah. have a neck problem at the time, which I believe is the truth. Uh, do I think that he needed to be in a neck brace in the courtroom? Probably not, sympathy. but they did it anyways, because that's how exactly. this game works. So, yep. uh, Overall, I would say this is a really good episode of, of Dark Side of the Ring, a fitting way to end the season. Uh, the worst thing I could say about it is, to be honest with you, they probably needed more time to cover something like this because there was some stuff that they left out that we're going to talk about a little bit later as well. Um, but in the time frame that they could do, uh, it was still a pretty good episode and I think one of the stronger ones of the season. Oh, so interesting. Like we said, we knew a lot about it and uh, I, I was really wondering what they were going to cover, but I, I learned even more. And and again, it just goes back to that. Having Jerry McDevitt is such a big part of this episode was huge. Him and Wade huge. Keller to me were the two most. And Wade Keller was really good. Yeah. And, and a lot of good talking heads, but yeah, overall super interesting. And as you mentioned, you know, getting into just some of my further notes towards the end, uh, you had mentioned that Nails, was gave his testimony. So that was a pretty funny thing. telling the jury that Vince ordered him to take steroids. And then McDevitt showed the jury a video of nails performing. And he was a guy covered with an orange prison suit. Like, yep. why would he need to be jacked? <laughs> like, yep. like the, he, he was and, able to, now, McDevitt was able to find everything, you know? And let, let's not forget this too. This is a guy that is um, on the state, on the stand saying these things. 
And he was excused from the company two years earlier for trying to hold up Vince McMahon for money. And when Vince didn't go for it, he punched him in the face. And then when the police <laughs> showed up, he said that Vince made gay advances towards him. And that's why I hit him. So the dude's really not credible whatsoever to begin with. And it's funny that we know stuff like this because we follow the wrestling industry. But apparently the prosecution didn't know this stuff, which is beyond me. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's there's brief video of Warrior leaving the court. He just says the whole thing's weak and credits Vince for taking wrestling to heights it had never seen. Uh, Right about this point, the prosecutors are desperate, so they bring in Zahorian from his prison cell to testify against Vince. So that was interesting where, you know, his testimony keeps referencing a ladder, which nobody on the defense has ever seen. So the judge orders it to be turned over. Um, you know, and it gets into that whole thing with, with McDevitt and Zahorian and, and stuff. And and at this point, like, like you said, the, the government's defense and, and, and their whole case is just going to shit, which, you know, eventually leads to the whole climax of the finalization of everything. Yeah. And, and now, too, with all this stuff being said, don't think for a minute that Vince wasn't taking this stuff seriously. We were wrestling fans at the time. and We watched the product. And we would come to find out later on that, and this is wild to think about this to Jay. So during the steroid trials and all the stuff that was going on, it was taking a lot of Vince McMahon's time. So he didn't have the time to work on WWF stuff as he normally did. So he had to bring certain people in to do things for him. And he had people set up in place in case he would have to go to jail. This is the time where two very unlikely people worked for the World Wrestling Federation in a booking capacity. Do you know who they are? No, I can't remember. This is where Memphis Wrestling's Jerry Jarrett would come in to do booking okay, for the WWF. I remember that. And how's this for crazy because of the specific topics that we're talking about? For one short period of time, it's the only time he ever worked for the WWF, and it's Dave Meltzer. Oh, Wow. People don't know that. I realize that. Meltzer worked for him for a short, and it was more of a consulting role. Um, But Vince used to have the, like, it's funny how people bitch about the the dirt sheets, quote unquote. Vince has had plenty of conversations with Dave Meltzer through the years, even on a professional basis. And a lot of people don't realize that. So Yeah, we're going to get into it. They were sitting right next to each other on Donahue. Absolutely. So Meltzer was very respectful of Vince. We kind of didn't talk a lot about the Donahue stuff in this segment because there's not a lot of it in this episode, and we're actually going to cover that episode of Donahue in our next segment. So uh, is there anything else you wanted to add to Jay about Dark Side of the Ring? So far, I'd say it was a pretty solid season, especially in the two pieces. Oh, great season. Love love uh, Evan Husney and his team putting things together uh, this whole time. You know, for, for wrestling nuts like us, to have documentaries in this like docuseries kind of format on vice is, is just, it's a dream come true, man. I love the show. We, we say it's called dark side of the ring for a reason. They tackle some very serious and, and again, dark uh, topics, but it's all reality. You know, that's the wrestling industry. We know that all too well, this industry that we fell in love with that we even on a small level took part in, you, you kind of see, how tough of a lifestyle it is for everybody. I mean, look what the head honcho, the billionaire is going through here. So, so yeah, the, the, the whole season uh, was, was great. And I can't believe they have three down. Hey, Ed. I know it is crazy to think they've already done three seasons, man. So 
Uh, I'm definitely interested to see where they go from here, but this is the official end of season three of Dark Side of the Ring. We hope you guys have enjoyed these segments each and every week here on the podcast. We are going to take a quick commercial break, and whenever we come back, we're going to be talking about the WWF episode of the Donahue Talk Show from 1992, all about the steroid trial and the child sex allegations. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Hey everyone, this is The J from the What's Real Podcast, here to let yins know about the feature films of Churchill Pictures. First is the Las Vegas Film Festival Silver Ace Award winner, Deference. Two best friends get in deep with the head of Pittsburgh's most dangerous crime operation and are forced to choose between their friendship and their lives. Deference is available now in hard copy USB format on churchillpictures.com and is currently streaming on vimeo.com, Amazon Prime, and is available for free on YouTube. Subscribe to the Churchill Pictures YouTube channel today. Next up is The Unsung. In an old industrial town, a homeless man roams the streets looking for a place to rest when a young girl is in danger. He runs to her aid and saves her from harm. She leads him to a homeless village where he is inspired by the friendships he makes there. Through newspapers and a radio, Eric learns about a series of murders taking place in town. Inspired by the comic books he reads, Eric creates an alter ego and attempts to get involved with the investigation. The Unsung is available on DVD through Walmart.com and DeepDiscountDVD.com and is streaming on Vimeo.com and Amazon Prime. Please consider supporting Churchill Pictures' latest feature films and picture the possibilities. following segment, by necessity, contains descriptions of child sexual abuse and law enforcement in action and a subsequent investigation of those allegations. If you believe that you might find such descriptions triggering or upsetting, then maybe you should proceed with caution. Listener discretion is advised. And we're back here on the show, and it is time to talk about the WWF sex scandal episode, or I should say scandal episode of Donahue. Um, the show would start out now, if some of you might not be familiar, but Donahue was a talk show that was on daily each and every day, uh, like four o'clock and, uh, they would tackle a whole myriad of topics and subjects. And the one that we were talking about this week, uh, is from 1992 and they had, they were covering and all encompassing the WWF scandals at the time. Uh, this is when the steroid allegations and stuff were ramping up, but it was also the uh, child sex abuse stuff that I talked about previously uh, in a segment uh, about former uh, WWF ring attendant Mel Phillips, who was in charge of the WWF ring crew, who in many cases were underage boys. Um, and he 100% assaulted underage children. Um, it was one of wrestling's dirty secrets. And it was something that never, he never came to justice for it. He passed away in 2012 as a free man. He was never brought up on charges or anything. Um, so much so that there was a, a ring boy by the name of Tom Cole, who put out a million dollar lawsuit for the World Wrestling Federation that would eventually be settled out of court. 
Um, this was one of the biggest proponents of this at the time. And this episode does talk about some of that stuff, but they mix in a ton of other conjecture and nonsense that we're going to kind of cut through as well. So this episode features people such as John Arezzi, Dave Meltzer, Barry, o Barry Orton, also known as Barry O., uh, former preliminary wrestler Tom Hankins, superstar Billy Graham, Bruno Sammartino, uh, former WWF announcer Murray Hodgson, and of course, Vince McMahon. Um, when the show first starts, we are basically at a small table where, where Phil Donahue is there, Vince McMahon's there, Tom Hankins, Murray Hodgson, and Barry O are all there. And it starts off with allegations from Murray Hodgson in which he was approached by Pat Patterson um, and, of course, Terry Garvin, and there were sexual advances made. And when he rejected them, he essentially lost his job. Um, there's been articles written on this. There's been podcasts. There's been all kinds of information put out there. Basically, all of the Murray Hodgson stuff was bullshit. Um, he wasn't very good at his job. He was let go because of that, and he sued the WWF and essentially made up stories based on things that he knew on the inside of the business, such as Terry Garvin didn't have the greatest reputation around wrestlers, and Pat Patterson was a homosexual who kind of flirted with people um, just for sheer comedy and did make people uncomfortable without a doubt. Um, he used this in regard to his lawsuit, which never went anywhere. And there is a large section of this show that is taken up by his allegations, which kind of further muddle the whole thing because there's true stuff being said on here and it's all being started out by a whole vast amount of bullshit. <laughs> you know what I, I have to say off the bat, hey, Ed, it's been so long since I watched any of these types of shows that were on when we were kids, as we always date ourselves on the show, just being in our 40s now, it's revisiting this, it just brings you back. You know, like I haven't watched this type of talk show in its format, you know, well before even like the Jerry Springer, which is a whole different form of entertainment anyway, but like the yep. actual like Donahoe and Oprah. And I, ironically, in a different segment, which I remember mentioned uh, Sally Jesse Raphael on the show last week because we were talking about that Canadian talk show that, that, Edge and Bret Hart were on, uh, but yep. nonetheless, that just took me back. And and it's just a different different time because, of course, Donahue's opening the show and mentions how the world of wrestling is kind of uh, a home to homosexual harassment, and the audience like cracks up. And yeah, off the bat, I was like, "What the hell?" And dude, yeah, he, and like <laughs> he tries to wrangle them. He's like, "Guys, this isn't funny." That's like, that's what I was going to say. He says multiple times. Yeah, he does like the kind of thing that kind of build up the whole show because this is the very beginning in, in my notes here. And like with the audience laughing, as you just said, hey, Ed, he kind of counterclaims. He's like, does the, the WWF have a casting couch? Is it trivial? Not when kids are involved, which is what is claimed. And also it's big business too. allegedly more revenue than was generated by the NFL in 1990. And, yep. and that's something I always say that I that I've kind of liked him bringing that up. Not like it's not an obvious thing, but I just don't hear it that much where it's because, because we always say pro wrestling is one of those things that it's like, you either love it or you hate it. Like there yeah. really isn't too much of an in between with pro. And you see that here completely. And to that, which what he's saying at the outset, because he, he even mentions, because it's something I always said, it's like, yeah, you guys all think it's funny, yada, yada, yada. Meanwhile, this guy over here talking about Vince is laughing all the way to the bank. Yep. He's, he's making billions of dollars off this shit that you just thinks, you know, because people just don't get it. You know, so that was kind of all my very initial thoughts on this. And the thing that I love about this, and I've seen this episode, but I actually watched this when it was on originally, 
because we were such like starved wrestling fans that anything wrestling. Yeah, it's like, oh, the WWF's on Donahue. Yeah, like I'm I'm watching this. I don't even care what it is, you know. And, uh, you know, it was really wild to see Vince McMahon in this type of environment because Vince Vince is pretty well regarded and guarded. Uh, We're, you know, like we were talking about the dark side of the ring thing in the last segment. Vince McMahon's never going to appear on anything like that, but he'll let his attorney appear on something like that. But this was a different time. And Vince went on here and he sat on that stage for an hour and took all the shit everybody was trying to give him. And he wasn't over the top. He he generally felt like he was trying to be as reasonable as possible. And I think that in a lot of ways, it's weird, but like, I don't think Vince was complete. I think a lot of this stuff was hidden from Vince. And I know Vince isn't one above doing shady shit. And I'm not saying that he's, you know, I'm not defending him. I just think a lot of this stuff never got to Vince. Yeah. With this stuff specifically, because a lot of it was so outdated. They'd ask the guy, well, when did this happen? He's like 78. Yeah. That's what Barry O said. Yeah, Barry O, he clarifies he, his issues not with the WWF. He's there talking about the pro wrestling industry as a whole and his bad experience there being sexually teased. So that right there kind of alleviates Vince from that particular story off the bat in this. And, and like you said, hey, Ed, with Vince's demeanor in this and things like that, he was saying, and he repeated it numerous times, he's like, I want to get to the bottom of this too. This is my company. I'm trying to have a wholesome company here. And like you said, you know, a lot of that could be be for show or whatever. But nonetheless, it, it made sense that he was just there to kind of find out exactly if it was something that, that he could, you know, get to the bottom of. Now, he would end up looking terrible on this episode uh, due to the audience, due to some of the answers that he gives to some of the questions and things like that. But it, it, this is a different time. People are not coached at this time like they are now when they go on television it's a completely different world in that well, and that show like the donahue uh, format, of course man, it's just it was just chaotic yeah and that's what it's gonna be it's gonna he's like be going like, to commercial half the time through this at weird times and stuff yeah, th- there's one part that's really funny on it he's like call her are you there and they're like yeah and he's like i don't Can't have talk time to, to talk to you and everybody <laughs> just starts yeah. laughing yeah. um but dude so the very beginning part where they're sitting at the table they get across very little of the information. Um, they talk a lot about Murray Hodgson's bullshit. Barry O does talk about some things, but they're varying. These aren't a lot of, sp- he's talking more about the things that he's heard and some of the things that he's experienced, which was very little in this regard. But I will say this, Barry O, and they bring it up on this episode, and this is absolutely true. He took a polygraph on this stuff and he passed. Yeah. So I don't believe that Barry O is lying in any capacity. Something else that people might not realize that Barry O's last name is Orton. He's related to Randy Cowboy Bob. And, you know, like he's part of the Orton family. He's also well regarded as being the greatest jobber in the history of professional wrestling. He was good in the ring and made guys look great. And he said something in this episode that would go on to be absolutely true later on in the show where somebody in the audience wants to say, oh, you say you'll, you know, you speak out about this, you're going to lose your job. And he's like, make no mistake about it. I'm done. I'm he's like, I'm finished. never wrestling again. And yeah. he was right. He never would wrestle for the World Wrestling Federation ever again. Yeah, that, that was just, you know, crazy, crazy part of it that I don't know. I, I guess, again, it just it's just the time of all this. But 
it, you know, it was just super interesting to revisit because I, I think I've seen this, but a long, long time ago. Uh, that would bring up next after Barry O's, you know, first kind of um, interview portion of it, if you if you want to call it that, that Tom Hankins, former wrestler. Yeah. And he talks about a specific incident when he was drinking with Patterson, Andre the Giant of all people, yep. Jerry Graham and Mike LaBelle in L.A. And he even says he knew Patterson was gay, but it, he was like, it wasn't a big deal for me. Like, I didn't care if he was gay. But then when I talked about trying to get a tryout, because, you know, he's a guy on the indies and things trying to work for the the big company, uh, even as a jobber, Patterson, allegedly to Tom Hankins' story here, said that he could only get in if he let him have oral sex with him, which he refused. And then the door was closed to him. That, that was Tom Hankins' story on this. And here's the thing. I've had some experience with Tom Hankins. I actually know him a little bit. He's a good dude. Um, I think this is just an instance of Patterson kind of fucking with him. Uh, but that's appropriate in the world of wrestling. That's how things work. But still, at the end of the day, that's not appropriate at all. He was a fucking official for the company. He probably shouldn't have been out drinking with people at the time anyways. But that stuff was just the way the business worked back then. Um, I do believe Hankins and everything I, everything that he said. I believe that he tried to contact the WWF to speak to Vince, and he was never allowed to. That also doesn't surprise me. I don't expect no, even back then to be able to call Titan Tower and get Vince on the phone. That's not going to happen. So, um, But he's such, such a smaller part of this than almost everybody else. So they go to a commercial at this point in the show, and then they come back, and everybody is up on the stage. This is the part of the show where Donahue would essentially roam through the audience, ask questions, allow people to ask questions. And on the stage, we have absolutely everybody that I mentioned at the beginning of the segment. And you're, they're talking about things. Bruno Sammartino is brought into this point, as is Billy Graham. Billy Graham is a unfettered liar. He's been for a long time. Um, he's a guy that essentially would be the WWF champion. Um, he is, without a doubt, one of the uh, pure inspirations behind Hulk Hogan's character, um, without question. But he's also somebody that did steroids for a really long time. His body broke down. He never really got back to where he was in the wrestling business, would deal with a ton of health problems, and then essentially would uh, just lie constantly about Vince McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation because he was a pretty bitter guy, and he still is to this day. Um, so essentially anything Billy Graham talks about on here is total bullshit. Yeah, because he told the story about seeing Pat Patterson grabbing an underage uh, ring boy by the crotch in New Haven and talking talks about being around Mel Phillips, who uh, he was caught in a car filleting a boy age 10. Those were his which, claims. Which my understanding is that is a true story. Um, and it doesn't surprise me that nothing was done about it. This is a different era. I'm not defending it either. Um, and dude, do you know where a lot of this stuff happened with Mel Phillips and these ring boys and shit? Just random weird arena parking lots or something like that? Well, no, I'm talking about the specific town because it happened uh, a no. lot. And it goes back to something that we've talked about previously, speaking on Dark Side of the Ring. If you guys go back and listen to an episode where we talked about the Nancy Argentino, Jimmy Snuka stuff, this murder potentially was covered up. In Allentown, Pennsylvania, where Allentown. the WWF used to run shows all the time. 
the same place where this incident with Mel Phillips happened and essentially probably why nothing ever happened with the Mel Phillips stuff because the Allentown police were apparently on the take or just willing to look the other way yeah, and it's because the, they, the one, need, they, they needed that business at that time. That was a major, major business deal for them. Yeah, the one spot that they stay idle, which is obviously rare. We always call pro wrestling like the modern circus or just, you know, circus S. They're always traveling the country from, you know, city to city. So when they were doing those shots in Allentown, they stayed there for a bit. So you have these crazy assholes actually staying in one place, you know, like anything, you're gonna have more issues. Absolutely. So that's what goes into that. You know, it's really, there's some, there, the one really bizarre thing to me is, so when Donahue starts taking questions from the audience, most of it's just dumb shit. It's like people are like, well, wrestling's stupid. Why do you do this? Or, yeah, they, or people being people like, oh, terrible. what are the percentage of people in wrestling that are gay? Like even in 92, yeah. the audience and, and again, they were that. all laughing about it. And then the, the only there's that young black kid that actually like this the only person on the whole thing what, that stuck up for Vince. Well, and this is what I wanted to bring up. The only audience member that actually brings up valid points is this black kid. And he gets shut down by Bruno San Martino being like, you don't even know what you're talking about. But he says, yeah, you'll know when you know, you're older, kid. But he calls out Bruno and he's like, your son was on steroids in this company and wasn't pushed, basically. And so you kind of have a grudge with the company. And then he talks about like, you know, fucking a bunch of people up here. And he's basically just shouted down and he sits down. But he brings up and, and he even says, too, that there's a, a lawsuit that was going on with, with Bruno. Um, and that that just gets shut down and it had to do with his son. And it's like, you know, no, Bruno, like there are legitimate claims being made here. And, and dude, I'll be honest with you, other than the fact of who he was and the fact that he was not friendly with the WWF at the time, that was the only reason Bruno San Martino was brought on here, which was a big mistake, I thought, because he, yeah. he couldn't speak to anything. He publicly held a grudge at the time uh, against the WWF. And you didn't need anybody on there holding grudges. There was plenty of bad shit that you didn't need to, that you didn't need the spotlight on stupid shit. The the bad stuff is there. Yeah. I mean, that's what he, he brings up how in his final days, he, he would refer to Vince's wrestlers as a bunch of druggies and says he would only drive with chief J Strongbow uh, because he didn't want somebody like all drugged up or coked up driving him around. And he didn't want to get pulled over in a car with guys with like their bags, packed with drugs and stuff like that and i don't yeah. know that's just it's just goofy um but that leads into uh phil donahue saying like well why hasn't all this stuff come up before and dave melter had a lot of good points here actually where he said you know it's because pro wrestling's never had a forum for it you know and he said sure. wrestling's like the mafia you can't get in and then he brought up the death of bruiser brody as an example of like don't snitch like he was murdered in Puerto Rico and you know people pretty much knew who did it and nothing ever happened from it and that leads into a resi telling a story about midget wrestlers that get, was getting laughs and I was kind of laughing about that just because of the, the whole content of it where the, the midget wrestler was led he like called the midget wrestlers a group led by the karate kid and then Pat Patterson yeah. wanted to suck him and I'm like Which- what is going on and that's another story that I've heard. I don't know if it's true or not, but dude, this but like is you thing. said, that could be a joke. If Pat Patterson's talking about blowing a midget. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know. but, but see, this is the problem. And this is why a lot of this stuff, that's why wrestling is considered a work. If you work enough stuff in there, 
then the the important stuff gets lost in the shuffle. And that's exactly what this whole show yeah, is. Exactly. Because so even even th- in that prime example, just to what you just said, hey, Ed, with this midget story from Arezzi, he ends up losing his point because of his phrasing and like retelling of the story. Like, I think he just realized telling that out loud, how like much of a bizarre, like comedic, weird fucking story that was yeah, to just tell. And, and that's not a story you tell to outsiders because it's already goofy. It's it's, yeah. it's wrestling. So let's talk shit. about so him trying to blow a midget. Exactly. And that's like, oh, fucking wrestling weirdos. And it's like, dude, people <laughs> yeah. might be getting raped here. Like, it's not yeah, really like the kids. time to. Yes. So listen to this. This is the stuff that uh, I also uncovered in the, the Babyface versus Heel article that David Bixenspan wrote. Uh, this is directly from the article. So. There was a potentially incriminating videotape of Mel Phillips in the possession of investigators, and it was not a secret, but it's also not something that was remotely well known. Its existence was first revealed publicly in a story that merited front page status on September 13, 93, in something called the New York Observer, an influential weekly broadsheet that's widely considered one of the inspirations for the editorial voice of what Gawker.com would eventually become. Um in this, it was originally a story that was, you know, they were supposed to do it for, um, it was called Now with Tom Brokaw and Katie Kirk, which eventually morphed into Dateline Wednesday. Um, the story read as slanted towards Titan, um, if just because the topic at hand is repeatedly compared to the disastrous fabricated Dateline feature about explore, exploding GM trucks that had aired 10 months previously. So uh, somebody named David Tepper um, spent hours on the telephone uh, attempting to attain the videotape uh, that he suspected showed Mr. Phillips, the former ring announcer, cavorting with ring bullies. Uh, the tape belonged to John Maloof, a former WWF employee who eventually agreed to send it to NBC, having been con- convinced by Mr. Tepper that airing it would help bring Mr. Phillips the discipline he deserved. Maloof, however, would get cold feet. Um, saying that Tepper's goal uh, had gone beyond nailing Phillips because he's got this hatred, it seems like, for Vince McMahon. He stopped the Federal Express shipment of the tape and claimed that Tepper repeatedly engaged in begging, yelling, and pleading for the tape in subsequent phone calls. Um, Tepper allegedly advised the shipping clerk for Federal Express that government agents would be uh, called in to get the package, uh, which actually happened as Valenti showed up just hours later. Days later in the issues of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, cover dated September 20th, Dave Meltzer wrote that uh, the article in the other New York Observer was, quote, believed to have been a product of the public relations agency working for Titan Sports, unquote. He added that the story was aggregated with blurbs in both the New York Daily News and USA Today, referring to the latter as a, quote, newspaper uh, that for years has come under heavy scrutiny for its seemingly biased coverage when issues involving Titan sports have come to light, unquote. Both blurbs focus on the WWF alleging collusion between Tepper and Valenti, while also carrying strong denials from NBC spokeswoman Beth Comstock. Though Meltzer felt that the WWF's public relations efforts had failed, Tepper's ring boy segment would never see the light of day. Documents obtained by Phil Mushnick and the New York Post in Discovery would show that Maloof had sent a copy of the tape to Titan's private investigators at Fairfax Consulting, who was brought up on this episode of Donahue, specifically by Vince McMahon as doing his uh, independent investigations of the Murray Hodgson stuff. Yeah, he names so, them in this, Vince. Yes. So at some point in 1992, in exchange for autographs for his son, they handed over the tapes to Fairfax. 
This just further suggested that the video was of particular interest. Over two years later, in November and December of 1995, in the New York Post and the Village Voice, it would be reported that uh, the Observer story was planted by Marty Bergman, the brother of legendary 60 Minutes producer Lowell Bergman, and secret financee of McMahon defense lawyer Laura Bervetti, who, by the way, if you watch the Dark Side of the Ring episode, whenever they talk about Hulk Hogan being tried, Jerry McDevitt couldn't do it because he had previously... uh, Uh, defended Hogan in court, Laura Brevetti was the woman that was brought in to take the place of Jerry McDevitt during that trial. So through full of redactions of the names of living persons, among other things, Bergman's own FBI file, uh, which David Bixenspan was able to obtain under a Freedom of Information Act, appears uh, to line up pretty closely with the 1995 reporting uh, in the New York Post or the New York Observer um, article. So um, they were given a bunch of information and things to have to do with Mel Phillips. So for Titan's part, Jerry McDevitt gave their side of the Maloof affair in a sworn affidavit accompanying a pleading in the Mushnick lawsuit where he attempted to block a motion to compel production of the tape. Quote, when Mr. Mushnick originally generated generated the stories of pedophilia, Mr. Maloof contacted Titan to indicate that he knew Mr. Phillips and expressed the view that Mr. Phillips had never done anything wrong to him in his presence. Uh, McDevitt's description of the tape was that it, quote, depicts Mr. Mel Phillips in a wrestling ring with several younger males. Now, it, of course, gets way creepier than that because uh, it is pretty much well known in wrestling circles that uh, he had a thing for feet. He was like a foot fetish guy. So it says, what exactly was on the tape then? So it was reported in Business Insider by David Bixenspan in a memo in the version of the WWS FBI file that he had come to uh, get his hands on at the time indicated that the videotape being shot in public place, the ring before a WWF show and quote, contained no obvious sexual activity, quote unquote, allowed for too many alternative explanations from Mel Phillips. So everything was redacted and this is why it was sent out. But essentially the review of the tape Um, shows Phillips lying with uh, someone's foot in his crotch area for an extended period of time, uh, as reads the September 13th or the September 30th, 1993 memo accompanying the Maloof tape to the FBI's behavioral science unit. Quote, all victims have stated that Phillips uh, plays with their feet for an extended period of time between a half an hour and two hours in duration. Uh, New York has subpoenaed Phillips to grand jury, but was told by prosecutors he will take the Fifth Amendment. New York would like to indict Phillips on sexual abuse charges if a video is consistent with the sexual abuse guidelines was found. Um, Now, this gives a much different impression than the versions of the relevant memos that were previously available, if just because what's described lines up exactly with how multiple victims describe their abuse at Phillips' hands. Tom Cole's complaint against Titan, for example, which was accompanied by a sworn Cole affidavit attesting to its honesty, alleging that Phillips would frequently caress plaintiff's feet and would rub them against his own genital area. Uh, As it was reported in the Business Insider feature, another ring boy told Cole's lawyer in 1992 that, quote, when Phillips was wrestling with us, grabbing our toes, he would put us in between his legs near his groin area. 
Um, in 2016, Huffington Post reported that another ring boy had sued the WWF and Phillips over similar allegations in 1999. His complaint alleged that, quote, Mel Phillips would often take uh, the plaintiff aside and play a game with him, where Phillips would then rub plaintiff's feet and toes against his crotch and would pull plaintiff's toes apart until plaintiff screamed. In other words, this appeared to be part of the ring announcer's modus operandi. The memos don't state whether or not the FBI knew what the tape showed uh, was exactly what Phillips was being accused of, but it was also far from a secret that this was known was what to being what was being alleged. And Cole had testified before the grand jury several times by then, though his previously unfiled complaint would not become public record until filed by Titan as an exhibit in December of '93. The scrutiny of the Maloof tape occurred before Cole became reluctant to share the full details of his abuse in interviews. Now, how's this for weird, the Jay? In the audience that day at the Donahue show was Tom Cole. Right. He it, People were worried that he was going to say something on this show, but it would be found out eventually that he would reach his financial uh, agreement with the WWF and Vince McMahon potentially as, as early as the day before the Donahue show. So he legally couldn't say anything on the show, but uh, Meltzer, uh, John Arezzi, uh, maybe somebody like Barry Owers, they knew that he was in the audience, and I think they were really surprised when he didn't say anything. So oh, wow. the reason why we bring all this stuff up is because see how all this stuff is somehow interconnected? The steroid yeah, right. stuff didn't get brought up until Phil Mushnick did the, the article about the sex abuse stuff with Mel Phillips. That was pushed aside because they tried to push him over on the prosecution side is working against Vince McMahon. My guess is that when he agreed to do that, he was probably given some sort of immunity. Um, it was never trialed, tried in the right place. Um, they never tried to bring this up as charges in the state of Pennsylvania and Allentown, where a lot of these acts occurred. It's not brought up where the videotape that they have of Mel Phillips, they said that it happens in a ring before a WWF event, but they don't say where the event happened. So there's a lot of weird shit worked in here. And we're talking everything from really good attorneys, dirty people in the wrestling business, uh, sensationalism by journalists, uh, journalists trying to cut through the red tape and find out what was actually happening. A lot of cover up stuff going on. The FBI not doing their investigation correctly, potentially looking the other way from the Allentown police and a whole variety of weird shit that makes this stuff just fascinating sad um you know pathetic in ways um it shows how really dirty and disgusting the wrestling business was at times um thankfully it's not like that anymore it still has problems like anything else but there's no way that a company that's publicly traded like the wwe now would have underage kids working on the ring crew so there's a lot of stuff that came from this through the time uh, you know, through the 90s and beyond. And it really changed the wrestling business for good and bad, to be honest. Um, but it, it's amazing how this one, like these multiple things all just get gelled into this one big thing, which I felt is kind of presented perfectly in the Donahue show. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and back to that, hey, you know, with the Donahue show right about where we're at is, you know, for Barry O to even Phil Donahue basically moderating this whole situation uh, with all these allegations and different things coming out where, where there, you know, Barry O says it a bunch of time right to Vince's face. Like, you know, I mean, I just don't believe you didn't know about this stuff, which 
Vince via vehemently denies and just saying like, you know, he has all this different stuff going on. Nobody's brought this to his attention. He doesn't know about these specific stories where Phil puts it to Vince that he must've known. And of course, Vince just smiles it out and denies looking the other way because like he goes into that tirade of why, why would he ignore these things? It's such a big risk to his company. You're talking about all these millions of dollars and and his company and his, you know, him trying to create a wholesome environment and stuff. Like why would he risk all that? So that was kind of his defense on it and kind of says like, it's a possibility response, but that he didn't know about it, you know? And then from there, it gets back to, uh, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I don't know. Like, I I don't think that this stuff was brought to Vince's attention immediately. Like Vince, there's this going on. Yeah. There's this random guy that said this from 78. Yeah. But like by the time that this stuff got to Vince, he clearly was not interested he wasn't worried about it vince has never had the greatest reputation of caring about talent and taking care of talent it just turns Um, into damage control for him it it absolutely does and that's the thing that he's worried about and plus this is a situation where terry garvin was released from his position he would never come back pat patterson was suspended would come back would retire and would come back repeatedly so Here's the thing. Vince's argument of, you know, why wouldn't I do so? Why would I risk all this for this? Well, I don't know, because you had no problem bringing Pat Patterson brought back time and time again after people brought up uh, numerous allegations. Exactly. So one hand has me thinking, well, Vince probably didn't know about a lot of this stuff. And then the other hand, it's like he probably knew and just said, fuck it, because Pat was his friend and he just wanted him to keep his job. And that's just what happened. And I think that in a lot of ways, we've known Vince is becoming kind of like this, uh, for lack of a better phrase, a mafia type guy where he's the boss at the top and there's a bunch of underlings you have to get through to even get to him. And I feel the reason why he's like that is because of all of this. Yeah, like you mentioned, he just wants to stay as far away from it quite obviously as he can. Because when you're running an empire, there's going to be things like that. That's what Barry O again says that exact thing. He's like, you're you're the you're the king of the empire. Yeah. You know, so if um, if he truly wanted to get rid of that stuff in wrestling, it would be gone and it would have been gone at that time. But it was dude, the, the wrestling business was such a weird industry to begin with before Vince McMahon was ever involved in it. And a lot of that stuff just stuck around for a while, too. By the time they're doing this court case and stuff in like 94, most of this stuff is vastly different than it was previously. Yep. And it, it all goes into correlation with the dark side of the ring that we just reviewed and covered uh, the steroid trial when they come back from a break and it's back to Billy Graham and Phil Donahue's asking if Billy Graham was the one that introduced wrestling the steroids. Billy goes on to say that he certainly talked to Hogan about it in 77 and takes offense to Hulk Hogan lying about it. Like you mentioned, Hey, Ed, stemming from his interview on the Arsenio Hall show and having injected Hogan a number of times and that Dave Schultz, who was removed from the show had injected him even more. And then he just starts ranting about child abuse to, to, to lie to kids about drugs, which I thought that stood out to me as being ridiculous for me just watching this here by myself. And then like the other lady, he's grasping at straws at that point. Yeah. Well, she she, later on after he said that she, she brings up like, why would anybody even want to get into this? This is like, I think she calls it like tacky because she didn't know how she was going to put it. But then he, like he goes back to his comment that I'm referring to here about, he's like, no, no, no. I was trying to say that, it's like uh, child abuse to lie to kids about drugs. You should know the truth. And I'm just like, at that point, I'm like, what? 
Like, Meanwhile, you know, he lied about it forever. <laughs> you know, yeah. like he's yeah. lied about a ton of shit. So, and, he, and speaking of that, speaking of lying, this is where Vince got caught in a little lie from Meltzer because John Arezzi brought up uh, yep. and asked Vince if it was true he was devastated by what Hulk did say on Arsenio. And Vince just said, I wasn't devastated. And then Meltzer goes, That was your word you used to me, devastated. That's the exact word like, you used right to me. then. <laughs> yeah. He's like, well, I don't, I don't recall saying that word to you, but I wasn't that devastated. Like it, dude, the thing is, is, and, and I don't know if Vince knew it at the time or not, but like Meltzer was coming with his stuff. Like Meltzer wasn't going to be there and not like get caught in some stupid shit and look like an idiot. He had all his facts lined up, everything. He was the most fair person on the entire panel. Um, I know. I think a had a lot of stuff he could have answered, but he just didn't do it. It was a bad performance by a in my opinion, which is weird because he had plenty of experience at the time doing radio and, you know, talking in public and stuff like that. So that was unfortunate. I thought Meltzer, even though Meltzer looked terrible with his fucking yeah, mullet, mullet and his horribly and horrible suit. suit. <laughs> um, but, but he was the one it looked that like he was wearing the, an old couch. Yeah. Basically a suit from 92, basically. Uh, but dude, it, he had the best performance of anybody. I thought he was the fairest. I thought he brought up good points for for and against Vince um, when it's pretty clear. Like, this is the way it seemed to me. I don't know how you feel about this, DeJay. But uh, Tom Hankins, he was fine. He didn't seem like he had an agenda to me. Um, John Arezzi was the same way. It just wasn't the best of uh, performance. Uh, Meltzer felt genuine. He was really good. Uh, Barry O felt genuine to me. I didn't think Barry O was lying about anything. Everything that he said was something that legitimately happened or things that he heard. Uh, Billy Graham was on there with an agenda. Bruno was on there with an agenda. Vince was on there with an agenda. And Murray Hodgson was on there with an agenda. And Donahue did a really good job, I thought, of trying to like cut through as much of the stuff as he possibly could. Yeah, of course, because it's wrestling and even on a freaking talk show, you mentioned it earlier, The this episode of Donahue, the show literally closes with the dude in the audience asking what percentage in wrestling is gay. And Phil, of course, shuts him down and says, well, what percentage is gay in your neighborhood? Report back to us. You fucking yeah. idiot. Like, you know, but but yeah, you, you broke down like kind of the aftermath of everything great with all the varying talking heads in this. And, uh, you know, always giving credit to our reference articles, blogofdoom.com. Uh, he mentions, where did it end up going? And as he said, Hodgson, Orton, Hankins, and Arezzi all faded into different degrees of obscurity. Vince, of course, navigated the steroid, steroid trial successfully two years later after this. Meltzer carried on just fine, still around, obviously. Uh, superstar returned to the good graces of WWE as a Hall of Famer, then got sacked and fell out with them because that's his, uh, you know, pretty much MO. As you said, hey, you know, Bruno, of course, taking the longest to appease, but he finally came back at the end, um, you know, a little bit before he ended up passing away. And then Garvin and Phillips, uh, I think you ran through as well earlier, two of the accused never came back and died years later. And of course, we know about Pat Patterson returning to his position and kind of being in and out of the WWE uh, most prominence in the attitude era as one of Vince's stooge stooges on air with Gerald Briscoe. So that's kind of the, what happened aftermath of all this with all these goofs. Yeah. It pretty much people just kind of fell into obscurity, man. It, it's just, you know, weird that this is, uh, you know, it's, it's honestly kind of a miracle that Vince was able to get into another boom period. Uh, just, you know, like six years after this aired, uh, they were booming again, you know, which is yeah. crazy to think about. Like, dude, it's, you know, it's wild. This really blew my mind thinking about this to Jay. 
when we started high school, this episode of Donahue was three years old. Yeah, that is crazy. Put things <laughs> in a time perspective, man. Yeah, like it's it's amazing. Like I'm, I highly recommend if any of this sounds interesting to you at all, uh, go on YouTube, check out WWF Donahue, and you'll get the episode. But, um, you know, I think that's pretty much it, man. I don't know how much. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to add there, the Jay? No, no. Like like you said, it's it's just one of those things. Again, I go back to what I was stating earlier, just getting older and learning more and, and the curtain gets pulled back and it's something you love so much and all these dudes that you grow up loving and you become an adult, you realize that everybody's humans. And, and like you said, especially the farther you go back in history with the pro wrestling industry, uh, I think it was just one of those things worth over the years, the way that it was set up, like we said, kind of mafia, really tough to get into all the kayfabe stuff. It, it, it attracted a certain type of person, you know, and I think that's where all that stems from, you know, like you're not exactly a normal person. That's going to be a professional wrestler, especially again, in in those days, it's a lot different now, like we discussed. So, but yeah, I think it was a a good breakdown, but yeah, that's my point is uh, at the end of the day with the victims involved in this. And that's why you had the, the description at the, the the beginning of this segment that there is some nasty stuff because you know you're talking about innocent victims as kids and stuff which I absolutely hate and that pisses me off but it is what it is again the truth's the truth and and this was a reflection of all that was going on at that time and, and this kind of coming into the public forum and dude just as a random side note I don't know if you saw this or not I threw the link in there with it Jay but there is a video that somebody posted and this is really interesting. Uh, Terry Funk had a curious debut in the WWF. Uh, he beat up Mel Phillips, the child stalker who worked for the company. Um, there's basically this thing where, you know, Funk used to wear like all the cowboy stuff back in the day, like the hat, the chaps and everything. And they would always have ring attendants come out to the ring and take their stuff. So during Funk's debut, he's in the corner and he's giving his stuff to Mel Phillips, who is the ring attendant at the time. And he hands over his cowboy hat and he hands over a few other things. And in the process of grabbing the stuff, Mel Phillips puts the cowboy hat on and Terry Funk beats the ever loving shit out of him. Um, He's working some stuff in there, too, but he's also working against a job guy. And he's like beating up the job guy and Mel Phillips at the same time in the middle of the match. And there's definitely some shots that he lands some shots on Mel Phillips. And at the time, this would have been something that was common knowledge probably within the company with this guy. Um, I'm honestly surprised we didn't see more shit like this. Yeah, terrible. There, there was the Piper's Pit with Mel Phillips uh, within yeah. this article too, which was interesting. And they'd completely fuck him up and like goof yeah. on him and everything else. Like it, it's it's one of the most wide open secrets at the time, I promise you that. And it's it's really weird, dude. I remember this. I remember knowing who Mel Phillips was well before I ever found any of this stuff out. And he was pretty much gone at the company by the time a lot of this stuff came out. But I was just like, dude, like, Jesus, this is gross shit, you know? And then the more stuff you see, it it just kind of gets worse and worse. But, you know, sorry to take you guys down the dark road, but I thought it was pretty interesting this week with Dark Side of the Ring and everything to kind of tackle this as a topic. It's a little bit different from what we normally do here on the show. And, you know, we're, we're deep divers as far as the world of professional wrestling goes. So it was kind of fun to get to go back and revisit something like this, even though, you know, a lot of it's horrible shit. Terrible. 
So that is it for the coverage of the Donahue WWF scandals episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that. We are going to take a quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, me and the Jay are going to do our final tallies for the 31 days of Halloween. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. An authentic Pittsburgh Italian restaurant tradition, Gerasoli's. Dine Italian style, surrounded by rustic stone walls as if you were in the wine cellar of a villa. Complete wine list and bar available, and check for live music nights. Fine dining with a traditional yet fun atmosphere. That's Gerasoli's. 733 Copeland Street, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 15232. time to get into the final of our segment here on the 31 days of Halloween. Me and the Jay have been breaking it down all month long, trying to get to 31 movies. So if you will, the Jay, let's just do it this way. Um, I'm going to give him a breakdown. I'm just going to read off all the stuff that I watched up to our last update, and then I'll finish off the list. So here we go. Here is my 31 days of Halloween. First up, 2021's Malignant. We watched 1988's Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, Halloween 4 from 1988, Race with the Devil from 1975, House on Haunted Hill from 1959, uh, Romero's Day of the Dead from 1985, Army of Darkness from 93, VHS 94 from 2021, 1980's Terror Train, 1980's Prom Night, 1985 Silver Bullet, 1980's The Shining, Phantasm from 1979, House from 1986, Friday 13th Part 2, Halloween Kills, Scream from 1996, the remake of The Slumber Party Massacre, uh, 2005's The Descent, Children of the Corn from 1984, City of the Dead from 1960, Messiah of Evil from 1973, Halloween H20 from 98, Halloween, or I'm sorry, Friday 13th from 1980, uh, Leprechaun 3 from 95, Penny Dreadful from 2006, 1971's Let's Scare Jessica to Death, Fright Night from 1985, and the last one that I did, I believe, was Child's Play 3 from 1991. So, the J, would you like to update us on your full list up until this week? Sure thing. Hey, you know, let's do it. The J's 31 Days here on the What's World Podcast 2021. We went with Malignant, The American Werewolf in London, Monster Squad, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, House on Haunted Hill, the remake, um, Friday the 13th Part 3 Friday the 13th Part 4 Halloween 2018 Curse of Frankenstein from Hammer Films Friday the 13th 2009 the reboot uh, I put Angel on here just because that was part of our uh, Halloween Hoot Nanny uh, Terror mm-hmm. Train The Hills Have Eyes VHS 94 House Halloween Kills House of Wax the remake City of the Dead and Messiah of Evil with Elvira 13 Ghosts, Slumber Party Massacre 2021, Odd Thomas, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Creep Show 2, Halloween 6, Night of the Creeps, Dawn of the Day- Dead 4K, um, you know, the 70s version, but 4K restoration, and then Night Teeth from Netflix, which brings me up to that was 28 watches and up to last week. All right. Nine, mine was up to 29. So. Uh, first up, the J. Let's just let's go back and forth here. Let's see how far we could go. Uh, 
What was number 30 on your list this year? Uh, this would be 29 because I'm behind you. Oh, I'm sorry, one. 29. Uh, all good. Um, this is one we didn't even talk about. Breaking news on the show to you uh, from the J. Hey, y'all. I watched Candyman 2021 actually this week. Oh, did you like it? Yeah, I really did. Oh, it was okay, good. that's cool. Cool right. imagining. Now, number 30 for the month. This is where I watched my favorite movie of all time, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Beautiful. Uh, this one I watched with the kids, uh, so I don't know if it's horror. I just I got a, a couple obscure ones on here of my last week of watching. I did get to 31 uh, officially, but I'll just throw these at you because it's a, kind of a Tim Burton kid horror, but that was Corpse Bride with the kids. Okay. And I did get to 31, and the 31st movie that I watched during the month was 2002, and I was really happy to rewatch this one, the J, Bubba Hotep. Oh, beautiful. I haven't watched Bubba in a while. Um, so the Jays number 30 was I also watched Silver Bullet. Couldn't pass that one up. Hey, yo. What, did you get did you get to 31? That was my 30 and my finals coming up is my 31. All right. Uh, so I did go beyond 31. Did, did you only get to 31? Well, I'll, I'll tell you my beyond 31 that I put on here. I just thought it'd be an interesting topic again, just because it's around the horror element. So I'll explain that. Okay. So Aaron, then I'll just finish out here. Uh, 32, I watched Scary Movie from 2000. 33, and this is weird because I watched this the night before the news broke. I watched George Romero's Martin. So that was weird oh, timing. Nice. That's what I was talking yeah. about earlier in the show. Uh, 34, I watched Evil Dead 2 from 1987. 35 was Halloween 2 from 1981. 36, this is on Paramount Plus, the J. I don't know if you have any interest in this. Paranormal Activity, Next of Kin, brand new. Oh, I heard about it, yeah. Just check that out. Uh, 37, I watched Censor from 2021. And finishing out my list, of course, was on Halloween. I watched Halloween from 1978. And the classic George A. Romero movie from 1968, Night of the Living Dead. So I got up to 39 movies this year. It was actually one short of what I did last year. Beautiful. Yeah, I purposefully did my 31st was just like you hate yeah, on Halloween night on Sunday was Halloween 78, which we always do, which which I remembered from last year's show. I didn't get to last year. So I really tradition back on. Yeah, I think it was something to do with the kids and. The usual excuse of the J schedule. And then the so Halloween was 31, so pulled it off officially. And then um, honorable mention, if you will, just because I finished it during uh, the 31 days and it's a horror show. But I don't know if you caught this. It was, oh, no, because I, I talked to you about it. And you didn't start watching these. But it's it's within the kind of quote-unquote supernatural series, starting with uh, the house um, on Hill House, Haunting of Hill oh, yeah. House. That, Haunting of Hill they, House. They have... They have uh, Three series, the newest one that came on, Midnight Mass. Okay. I watched that through this whole thing too. And I just figured, you know, since I watched it during the, in its horror, I threw that on there. That would be my 32nd watch official, you know, before 31 closed out. So we both okay. pulled it off. Hey, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Now that's not it. So whenever we do our roundup, we don't just give you guys the list and that's the end of it. Me and the J uh, tend to have some mystery questions for each other concerning our lists. So the J, let me start it off for you here. What was the one movie this year that was a first time watch that you watched over the series that you would say is like the best first time watch that you had over the month? 
All right, the best th uh, first time watch. Hey, yo, uh, I got a couple candidates just off the bat, and I'll tell you which one I liked between the two of them. So those two candidates, or I'm sorry, three. I'm going to give you three, and I'll pick the one to answer your question. Uh, that would be Candyman 2021, Slumber Party Massacre 2021. So two reboots, and then uh, Malignant. Uh, I know I like that a lot more than you did, uh, but I really like Malignant. But all in all, I'll have to go with Candyman 2021. Oh, wow. That was probably okay. my freshest watch. You know, out of my fresh watches because everything else I've seen before. So, okay. Uh, I really liked it, man. It was a solid reimagining, very different, you know, well shot and everything. Uh, you know, I won't spoil anything, especially here just in the 31 days segment, but the end was really cool. You know, a returning actor, if you will. Uh, so yeah, yep. uh, very, very enjoyable. Um, so I'll throw you, Hey, you know, I, I like to start off with this. I think I did this last year when we did it. What was the the kind of biggest sleeper watch of this year's 31 days that, that kind of took you by surprise? Super easy. It's the slumber party massacre remake. I didn't expect nice. that to be, I thought it looked good, but I was expecting it to be a piece of shit and it's actually a lot of fun. I definitely would recommend yeah. that one. So that's probably the one that I'd go with there. Um, uh okay this was due to like a lot of the rewatches okay like the old favorites and things like this which one of the movies that you've seen already on this list probably aged the worst to you or maybe like you watched it and you're like man i remember this being better um that's kind of an easy one too and and you, you'll kind of roll your eyes out at, at it because it's pretty obvious but for me you know the jay i kind of have a different take and, and things like that. I mean, we all have our opinions and out of all the issues I had with the Friday, the 13th, 20, 2009 reboot watching it again. I think we talked about it when I mentioned it, you know, earlier on in the 31 days, man, it just, it aged even worse. <laughs> remembering, you know, like even, even that scene where the dude's hooking up with the chick with like the amazing rack and he's like, I, I can't even remember what he said. Like, you know, you have amazing tits or something like that. Like, that wasn't even as funny as I remember because obviously you've already seen that part, but yep. yeah, to, to answer that, I, I'd go with that one. Okay. Um, so yeah, just to throw at you, what's the, the film, uh, as you mentioned to me for your first question that stood out as the best one that you hadn't seen before. Hmm. Best one that I haven't seen before. Within That's the a good question. Days 21. Yeah. Um, a lot of rewatches, man. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, it's... Uh, again, it's probably just the fucking Slumber Party Massacre remake. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I thought it was your sleeper and it's a new one. That makes yeah. sense to... Yeah, that's probably that. where I would put that one for sure. Because everything else is pretty much stuff that I saw before or I wasn't like blown away by it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I love the paranormal activity movies and I thought the new one was cool, but it wasn't anywhere near the best one or, you know, like even close. That's so, what I've heard so far. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth a watch, but that's pretty much about it. So, but yeah, I'd probably go with the slumber party massacre uh, remake on that one. Um, okay. Here's a good one. Uh, any of the movies that you watch this year, that's going to make it on your like annual Halloween list. Annual Halloween list. Uh, it might have to be Halloween Kills. Honestly, I really enjoy okay. Halloween Kills. You know, love the franchise, and as you and I both agree, 
for all of them and even seeing all of them, even the ones I don't like numerous times, just because that's what we do as horror fans. The Halloween franchise between like the big ones like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, I think has the least amount of, of really good ones. So, uh, you know, pump up Hall- the Halloween franchise with one I like with this this year's Halloween Kills. So that'd probably be the answer to that. Um, uh, again, just because it's it's easy, I'll throw the same question uh, back at you. Hey, you know, what, what's yours? Hmm. I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I watched anything this year that's going to make it on my yearly list. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm surprised how many kills not, on your end too. Yeah, maybe. You know what I mean? Because I don't really like the first one, and the new one yeah, kind of throws out it yet. off a bit. Yeah. So, like, I don't really know how good it's going to be in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, that would probably be the closest one to that overall. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, I feel like that's kind of a cop out answer. <laughs> so yeah, but it's, yeah. it's unfortunately the, the best one that I could give. So, yeah. um, okay. I got, I got another good one for you, the J, uh, this one's pretty easy. Uh, which one wins the gore award, which would be probably the goriest thing you ended up watching this year. Yeah, that's a good call. Uh, let's think about it here. Cause the slumber party massacre remake 2021, they upped the gore in that. That was pretty good. I didn't watch too many gory things. I mean, Dawn of the Dead is, you know, has some solid gore, of course, the original. Okay. Um, let's see. I'm just looking through the list here. Uh, other than that, the, the runner up would probably have to be of all things. This might be surprising because the movie's goofy, but that 13 ghosts. And, and again, that's something else I remember talking about when I mentioned in our 31 day segment at the time that 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 was in the group, that that was way more violent, a lot more gory kills than I remembered. Uh, that yeah, was, I don't know if you remember the one because like where the thirteen ghosts are is like that crazy ass contraption like chamber place, yep. Yep. and the the one dude gets gets caught in the glass and it splits him in half. Yep, and he like slowly falls down. So yeah, I, dude, I have to go with that out of the things I watched. Very weird era because I feel like they got a lot of the gore shit right, but meanwhile, like the fucking premise of the movie will be well, garbage. Like, yeah, as always, they sacrifice the, the story and character development it reminds me of um uh what the, is it ghost ship yeah the, the, the first scene is the best scene dude the first scene is it like sets the stage of stages you're like this <laughs> yeah. movie's gonna fucking rule and then the rest of it nothing <laughs> yeah. happens you're it's like terrible. god damn it you stupid yeah. fucking movie but, and, and i have to say at that point though because it was funny i just remembered it in 13 ghosts when that happens it's a lawyer character like i said he gets split in half cut to the next scene in the one chicken. It's like, where'd that lawyer go? Did he split? But I'm naturally, I thought that was, that was a good one. Um, so throwing it at you. Hey, EO, uh, I just had a good one. And of course I had to tell us the stupid joke that I remember. It broke my concentration. <laughs> on what I was going to ask you. Uh, so let's go with an easy one uh, for this year's 31 days. What was your favorite overall watch? Go looking back at it. Um, Hmm. Let's see here. Favorite watch, favorite watch, favorite watch. Um, I could just be cheap and easy and say Dawn of the Dead because it's my favorite movie, but I'll be honest with you. It was probably Martin. I, it's Beautiful. been a little yeah, while That's why I've been trying to track Martin. it down, dude. I haven't seen it in so long. I can't wait. I'm just going to try to get that Blu-ray. I'm hoping that's not something that will sell out easily. Yeah, if you want to watch it, I can facilitate something for you i'll share that with you off the air 
Yeah, but I, I mean, I just think for the collection and stuff anyway, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously you'd want to own it. You know what I mean? Your mom's yeah. in it. Get her to sign it for exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But yeah, man, uh, I think that's pretty solid overall here for for 31 days of Halloween this year. Uh, you know, pretty happy to get the list going. Uh, nice motivation to actually get out here and watch stuff. So, you know, 39 more movies down for the month of October is always fun. Uh, definitely had a blast as I usually do. So I look forward to it each and every year, man. Yeah, it's such a good time. Like, real quick, let me throw this at you because it will be fun because it's just right in front of me. It won't take long. I, I mentioned to you, I kind of made a blueprint just to help out my watching, you know, just to have things ready. So let me throw at you what I didn't get to based on my blueprint. And the first few were collections I didn't get to chunk into other than Curse of Frankenstein that I watched from it. But I have two different Hammer Films Blu-ray box sets that I barely got into other than Curse of Frankenstein that I had on here. My Universal collection, I didn't even get to any of the Universal classics, the Universal Monsters. I like watching at least one of those. I have a Stephen King collection of Ada Hill's films that's pretty cool. I didn't get to that. Phantasm 3, Phantasm 4, Late Phases. That's a fun uh, kind of unknown gem werewolf movie because I love werewolf movies. One, I had the Fun House on here. Didn't get to the Fun House. Uh, randomly, I had Idle Hands with Devin Sawa from back in the day. Yeah, I'd like to watch that again. Productions. Dude. Yeah. How weird! How weird is this? But in the the new Chucky series, Devin Sawa. Devin Sawa is the, the father. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and he was the he was the the brother too. Yeah, he played uncle. two people. Exactly. I'm like, yeah, gee, Devin yeah. Sawa getting all this work all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, uh, then just a couple more off the what the J didn't get to off of my blueprint for the 31 days. Uh, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre three. I have that on Blu-ray. Haven't even cracked it yet. Didn't get to it though. There's a movie called, there's a couple here, Cold Skin and Let the Corpses Tan. There are a couple movies uh, I read about and just blind bought. I've ne- I haven't got to them. I've owned them for a couple years. So I wanted to get to those and I didn't. The Masters of Horror Collection, I had that on here and didn't get to. And the last two were Blood Diner and Book of Monsters. So dude, handful I didn't even get to. Hey, yeah. the, the Masters of Horror thing would be cool, but the only reason I wouldn't do that is because if I was digging through that collection, I'm going to be like, dude, this is going to be like a week of me not watching movies that's, just because that, I'm watching that, these shows. A lot of those collections, yeah, I think that's what happened. And you know how it is. You kind of just got to go how, how your schedule is too throughout all this and, and figure things yeah. out. So, But either way, we both got to 31 and beyond, so I'll take that. Which is difficult enough considering all the stuff. Like we basically put everything on hold except for the other shit that we cover here on the show. It, we're pretty much just watching horror movies. Yeah, horror so, and football in October. Exactly. So uh, we are on to take a break from that. So that's a good thing for sure. But uh, always happy to get back into it each and every year. A lot of fun. So hope you guys enjoyed me and the Jay's personal 31 days of Halloween here on the podcast, but it is time for us to take our last commercial break of the show. So we are going to take a commercial break. When we come back, we're going to be talking some goofs and we're going to do the show wrap up. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Whitaker Tire is your place for speedy service, wide selection, and great prices. We offer new and used tire sales as well as tire services at our location at 3701 Green Springs Avenue in West Mifflin, Pennsylvania. As a tire dealer, we offer the best tires from top brands, including Bridgestone and Firestone. We're open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Saturdays from 9 to 3. Please give us a call today at 412-462-1199. Whitaker Tire, for your best tire services in Pittsburgh. 
Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Goofs. And we're back, and it's that time once again. So the J, what do we got this week on the Goof front? Ah, oh, the fresh waterfall air, the waterfall of goofs here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, you know, we are back, and episode 93 has a slew of goofs, as the What's Real Podcast never disappoints with our GRG segment. I don't know if you heard this one, hey, Ed. This was a, actually just pretty funny story. Uh, it was posted by Anheuser-Busch. For, for those that might be living under a rock, that's the company that has the owns probably the most prominent American beer, or most recognizable Budweiser and Bud Light. Well, there was a point where Heineken resisted Washington football team quarterback Taylor Heineke, his calls for an endorsement deal, but Bud Light saw an opportunity and seized it. And there's a, a whole article about how Anheuser-Busch is leading the industry through a longstanding record of innovative, responsive marketing. So they have dubbed it Bud Lighticky. <laughs> so there you go. They took uh, over <laughs> Heineken's saying no to Heineke. And, you know, obviously Heineke just put that together. It was like, hey, man, good, easy endorsement deal here. I'm the starting quarterback for the Washington football team. I named similar similar to your beer, but they, they weren't having it. But Bud Light saw it. And, uh, yeah, I guess it's, uh, you know, off the bat here, a pretty good ad campaign for, for everything. <laughs> so, hey, he fun. needs that money while he can get it because he's probably not going to be starting for long in the NFL. <laughs> exactly. And I like him too, but the NFL is the NFL, man. There's only so much you can do. He makes some good plays here and there. But, yeah, when you're competing with some of these, you know, top-tier teams, forget about it with, with Heineke's ale. Moving on, hey, you know, this was a hilarious story. Uh, again, but not sure if you caught this one. This was something from IGN. So for seven years, a man who goes by Dylan, shout out to my nephew who's named Dylan, used his $150 Six Flags Magic Mountain annual pass and its meal benefits to eat lunch and dinner there almost every day. Here's the kicker, hey, he's paid off his student loans, got married, and bought a house in L.A. Dude. This is a true story. <laughs> this is the smartest dude of all time. That's the greatest <laughs> idea. I've yeah. never thought, like... Dude, that would be like, I even this thought is like about, a movie like, idea. Like, dude, <laughs> if I was right. young, that's some shit. I think I would like, I'd have been like, wait a minute. I could buy this fucking pass and I could literally eat here twice a day. And it's going to save me a shitload of money in the long run. Like I would have did that without a doubt. I'd have been like, fuck it. And I'll ride a couple of roller coasters while I'm in there. Yeah. Yeah. I was dying. Some hilarious shit. Uh, next up, a man was covered in poop. After a passing plane dumps toilet waste over his backyard, lawmaker says. And as Steve Agee said, nice to see the Dave Matthews band is touring by plane these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you imagine that? Like, man, I just need some fresh air. And then you're just like, Whoosh. tell yeah, me that's I'm not shit. The most surprising thing about this article is it's not me telling you the story about myself. Because it yeah. sounds like something that would happen to me. You missed that one. <laughs> so, thank, thank God. As as those that listen consistently know, and if not, we'll introduce you to this portion of GRG. Hey, Ed and I love crazy animal stories. This one was pretty <laughs> wild. Uh, I didn't know if you caught this one. Scientists from the Nanjing Institute of Geology and Paleontology recently discovered a fossil of a scorpion that lived on the seafloor in the south of China. The catch hail. It was 16 times longer 
than the average scorpion and lived at least 400 million years ago. So here you go. Breaking news on Goose or Goose. A dog-sized scorpion ruled Chinese seas 400 million years ago. Well, I'm assuming what's real podcast. I'm assuming they've become extinct and I couldn't be happier to be honest yes. with you. Cause that sounds like a fucking creature from a nightmare through, through starting the podcast in 2020. We've been through murder hornets, murder hornet, Queens, cocaine, hippos, cannibal alligators. We don't want to add dog sized scorpions to the yeah. list. Dude. And tell me dog sized scorpions doesn't sound like something that like Boston dynamics is currently working. Like next week on 60 minutes, you're going to see they'll be like, we're going to show you the robotic dog scorpion that can jump 30 feet in the air and kill you with just a glance. And you're like, or, God damn it. Yeah. Or a shitty punk band that's playing in the South side. Of Pittsburgh, <laughs> the the dog sized scorpions. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the dog sized scorpions. <laughs> Next up in the final portion of the segment for the episode 93 edition of Goofs or Goofs. And it's our favorite lady, hey, aunt, the friend of the show, our personal friend, Gwyneth Paltrow herself. And of course, her famous vagina that we've covered numerous times. Uh, she has a new Netflix show. I'm not sure you're aware of Sex, Love yeah. and Goop. And yeah. during the show, two women undergo sexological bodywork for different sex concerns when practiced ethically, other sex and relationship experts support the practice. But uh, more to it is that, let's see, I'm, I moved my thing here. But it, it's like a sexological bodywork or sex bod where Chandra, who experiences pain during penetration, has Camille work over the difficulty about speaking up about what she wants. Goop. What is this on? Um, like, how, how do I watch Netflix. this? Netflix. 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 I have to write this down because I don't want to accidentally watch it. <laughs> Fucking we, we, dumb shit. We assume sex should be easy and enjoyable, but a lot of us develop sexual problems and talk therapy is sometimes just not enough, says Tom Murray. So, yeah, if you want to check this out, it's on Netflix and uh, is... Brought to us by again our one of our favorite people on the show, and I obviously say that in jest. Hey, as you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, and uh, we we've talked numerous times about her candle that smells like her vagina. So that's the only reason I put this in here. Yeah. So remember, guys, it's on Netflix, so you can cancel your subscription now. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> but that's that's on the J, a weird version of Goose or Goose, but we have it like that. And as I say to my brother from another mother, between Heineke losing his <laughs> Heineken deal but getting Bud Light to a man covered in poop, dog-sized scorpions, the smartest Six Flags dude ever, and Goop. Goofs are goofs. Goops are goops. Also, just had to throw that out there. So that's going to be it for us this week here on episode 93. If you guys are listening on iTunes, please feel free to give us a five-star review. Helps out the algorithm, get more eyes and ears on the program. Also, you can listen each and every week on your favorite podcasting platforms such as Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and each and every week on churchillpictures.com. If you have anything you'd like to send to us here on the show, you can do so by email at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that is whatsrealpod at gmail.com. But before we get out of here, here you revving it up the J. So the J, take it away. 
revving it up like the Jays riding in on a dog-sized scorpion. Hate you. But as I always say, love the show. Great spending time with you on a boring-ass Tuesday night anyway with, as I say, the great escapism. Steve McQueen in it in this mug, escaping pandemic life living that is still ongoing, unfortunately. Hopefully we're out of this soon. Hey, Ann. Shout out to the wizard behind the boards himself. And as I always say, love the show. Great audio each and every week from the Wiz himself. So got to shout him out and say, love the show. And I am officially hitting my complete delirious state, as you can tell. Hey, yeah. So I'm just going to take it home. Stay healthy. Stay safe out there. You'll hear the J next week. So that's it for us here on episode 93. Thank you to the J for sitting down with me here each and every week as we do. There's nobody else I'd rather do it with. And thank you to our producer, Cam, for all the hard work he puts into the show, making us sound so good each and every week. And as we do here on the show, nobody beats the whiz. So that is it for us here this week on episode 93. Don't forget to join us next week for episode 94 and beyond. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Guard your b-hole and all that fun stuff. See you next week right here on the What's Real Podcast. What's real? What's real? What's real?